People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You know, I was brought up to believe that the customer is always right, that a business is there to serve the customer, to improve their situation, and if the business does that well, it gets rewarded with more customers didn't start lecturing people about politics and stuff. Society's got so angry. People are frightened. What happened? Is it because we're on the internet all day? What happened? Feels like we are badly gone astray. What happened? Is there anyone who knows? And my glasses are still slipping down my nose. I'm not outspoken, but I feel I must speak out. Speak out! I need to know what all this madness is about. Out, out! Where did it come from? Oh, it makes me want to shout. What happened? Maybe it's the music that we play. What happened? Is there a new pronoun every day? What happened? Suppose and my glasses are still slipping down my nose. Why do you hate me with your identity? This wretched ESG and fake diversity. I'm not your enemy. What happened? Everybody's scared of being attacked. What happened? Suddenly opinions are now facts What happened? Seems we're descending to new lows Good morning and welcome to Greenwash with me, Jasreet, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. And Hi. on that note, it's it's going to be quite a, quite a show this week. Hi, Don. Yeah. Hi, Hi Jasreet. I'm not sure that was descending to new lows. Uh, I think we're just peaking, you and I. Um, <laughs> great that we're in July um, and good to be, it's hard to believe. What's happened to the year so far? What's happened? 
<laughs> for for anyone who was listening to that and wondering what that was, that is a YouTube video recently released by the gentleman in the UK called Howard Brown, also called Halifax Howard. He was a customer services rep for HBOS, which owns both the Bank of Scotland and Halifax Bank. And with the, all that Don and I have been talking about recently, equity, diversity, the push for ESGs, the push for DEI, which Don would rather I call die, diversity, equity and inclusion, this seemed a fitting start to the week. Fitting start, all right. Um, uh, that word equity is everywhere. It's almost like the virus of the of the of the written word at the moment and the spoken word. It is everywhere. And what does it mean? Um, hard to know uh, to, to explain it clearly. But from where I sit, it means something that I can't support easily. Um, it certainly doesn't mean equality of op- opportunity. It sort of is around bringing up, uh, bringing the top tear down and the bottom tear up if you can talk about tears and I don't like to talk about tears because that's uh that's not ideal either but you know I go back to the former prime minister talking about her being just and kind and I remember her saying this is us a few times and this isn't us this stuff isn't us and you uh well from where I sit we've got to push back even harder we've been quite passive to date um they talk about stakeholder um, powers being more than shareholder powers. Um, I think we've got to bring that balance back and get get merit, get get a whole lot of things back in balance again. I mean, uh, when I read something else, sorry, Jasper, I'm rabbiting on already. I, I read that there was a Peggy McIntosh in 1988 started using the term white privilege and male privilege. And then I rem- recall all the terms about being PC. You had to be PC. Uh, This stuff has just grown so, well, it started off insidiously, but now it's right in your face. And uh, it's not helping the world one little bit. And, you know, I might be a a European male, but I don't have any feeling to uh, be oppressive to anybody else. I just think of you as a Kiwi Don, which is Mm. exactly what I think of myself. But what you just spoke about equity, much of the mailbag we've got this week, uh, your thoughts seem to find an echo with a few of the listeners. Tobin has written in Monday discussions, equity, yes, the control being inflicted on our every thought. Where did equality, good old equality go? Life here is racist, sad directions. The treaty gave equality for all. What's the matter with that? Was that gone? We understand the separation of church and state. Why not separation of race and state? Uh, I am not what they say. A number of culturally fashionable young people are saying I'm Maori, where in fact the tiny percentage of Maori involved is ridiculous. I'm not Irish, Welsh, or French. I am a Kiwi, as Mm. am I, Tobin. And he sends his text to us saying, I'm moving to Tasmania. They only speak English. Equality exists. Yeah, well, it's he's right on all counts there. I mean, I went to see Julian Batchelor last Sunday week ago, and uh, in Invercargill, and yeah, those protesters mm-hmm. at the gate, they were being a bit naughty. Some of them were taking uh, video uh, camera shots of, of the registrations of cars going in. 
But I found uh, once we got into the meeting, I'd never heard Julian before. Uh, the learning I obtained, especially in the second part of his um, presentation, was fantastic. And if I'm not allowed to go and hear that stuff, um, we're in a really bad spot. Um, so, you know, people that want to shut down free and open debate, whether they and speech, if they don't like it, you know, they don't have to listen and accept it, but or accept it, but give others the right to at least have um, unfettered access to it. So, yeah, I'm pleased that I've been, and um, I was pleased that I read Muriel Newman's piece on the treaty. I'm far more informed about the treaty than I ever was before. Um, and, you know, all I ever hear from some Maori is that it's the elite end of town that are doing this, the elite Maori that are doing this, and effectively creating a division. And it's it's an almost palpable division now, isn't it? Yep. As as I mentioned, a, a Maori mate of mine, uh, she hosted uh, Julian at her place, and uh, it it went well by all that I've heard. So you know, it is it. Uh, I think there's a lot of truth in the fact that not everyone is in favor of this, much as the media would like to push the narrative. We have Mike Meadows. Uh, who emailed us, listeners might remember, a couple of weeks ago, when Don and I had spoken about how NZTA, the Land Transport Agency, is now willing to sacrifice a bit of physical safety for uh, cultural safety of language. And Mike had written in then about his wife uh, and him almost running late for an important cancer appointment because he couldn't make out the signs. He's written back, he says, I must let you know my wife did not survive and I do miss her terribly in these times. She was my balance in life. I heard Julian Batchelor talking to Paul, that's Paul Brennan, on the breakfast show and was astonished at what he had to say. I don't know if I would have the fortitude and backbone to continue on as well as he has. I applaud Julian and the actions he has taken, pretty much echoing what you said just now, Tom. Yep. So, uh, what more can you say? It's uh, it's. There's a lot of people awake to it. There's just not enough. Just not enough. Or, I think many are not saying it. Not saying yes. it yet. Yes. That's. I think, I think right. more are aware and worried than they let on in public. But other mm. than that, much of the feedback last week uh, seems to have reflect the fact that people enjoyed having uh, Professor Jeff Tuffy on. Yeah, they did. And we've had great feedback um, all week, actually, about that. And, uh, yeah, it was a long interview and great that people um, got something out of it. Uh, there's one other bit of feedback here. Um, you know, I gave a bit of stick to the the EV farm vehicle um, <laughs> segment we did. And I'm not against EVs, as I perhaps haven't made clear. Um, they've got a use and a place. Um, or uh, It's just, uh, it, for me, it wouldn't be on my farm. Uh if they have to pull trailers and and you know do some hard stuff, um, I certainly can't see tractors being useful. Electric, you know, electric tractors are a long way off. I would imagine. Mm-hmm. But the the thing that came across you on my desk this week was uh, a, a bit about how EVs are being hard on roads. Um, apparently, in the UK, because of the weight of the car compared to the standard uh, internal combustion car, I. I wasn't aware of the significant weight difference, but they're saying that they're creating more potholes on the road where there's 
um, lots of EVs. And in the in UK, I think I read there was 900,000 EVs on the road already. Well, oh, I thought it was just climate change that causes potholes. I saw oh, one of the police in somewhere in North Island talk about the fact that climate and potholes. Oh, I, sorry, I thought it was came from Hollywood. Um, <laughs> Jane Fonda talked about, uh, yeah, yeah, look, I'm being glib. Let's not be so glib. The, the interesting thing is, if they are causing potholes, it's damn well time they paid some road user charges. They're not paying road user charges in New Zealand. They're getting access to the, to the road for free currently, and they're getting subsidised purchasing power, the people that are running them, um, for, for the new vehicles and I think even some second-hand ones. But um, time they paid their way if they're causing so much damage in the UK, it, it will clearly be that they're causing damage here too. Um, any road use causes uh, of vehicles can cause damage or wear and tear. So it's way past time that EVs and people owning EVs got their free ride snipped and they started paying their way. It makes me angry, that part, that whole part of the EV push makes me angry. The fact that there's free access um, uh, to the roads and that they're now under this year's budget looking like getting charging stations put up all around the country at taxpayers' expense. On taxpayers' expense, mm. yep, that is that's probably the biggest thing because mm. subsidizing again, and yet it is uh, supposedly we are in a recession, isn't that what two consecutive quarters so, of so, you know? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Now, look, look sorry, I was deflecting from um, the, the all the good feedback we've had, and gee, we've had lots of good interact, uh, good feedback, and you see it on on social media as well. Um, so we haven't read about read everything out, but um, we've had a, a busy week really. Um, uh, early last week, I um, chaired meetings around the south, uh, one in, co in conjunction with Groundswell. In fact, they were all in conjunction with Groundswell. But we had Dr. Tom Sheehan here, and uh, they were well attended in the south. Uh, in Invercargill, um, where I chaired the first one of his three in the south in the far south. He, without prompting, got a standing ovation, a yeah. standing ovation. I've never, ever seen that in any function uh, where you get some person sort of lecturing. And I don't think you'd get a university lecturer get a standing ovation at the end of a course uh, or get a, a, a lecture. So for Tom to get that uh, was quite touching, to be honest, quite touching. Yeah, that that was a great evening. He did three talks down here in uh, Southland, uh, in Vicargill, Gore, Balkluta. And uh, he really, I think he had a demanding sh schedule here in New Zealand. Oh, for yeah, he's in his 80s and a poor guy. He was never let alone by people involved in our circle. Uh, mm. Plus he did um, sort of alternative media certainly no mainstream media um it was all sort of uh the media uh our media uh we're going to have them on after the, after the break um and and perhaps some other platforms had him on too so he was busy he's gone home uh let's hope there's some logic and reason comes into the debate because what he had to say was so so important to the new zealand uh economic viability actually it's massive um the topic he was on and boy are we having a battle getting anyone to listen in the wellington machinery let alone the farming um 
political lobbies. They just don't want to know this. And you've got to question why. But we'll talk to Tom a bit bit later. We we will talk to Tom a bit later. But yeah, I think just before uh, we wrap up this first segment, uh, we've spoken about diversity and equity time and again. And these these how do i use them these initiatives that they are pushing are now being used for whatever whatever possible purpose you can think of you know if suddenly race relations there is esg for farming reporting there is esg for gender equality and so on and businesses i seem to think and you know this is uh, maybe it is just me but uh, how many of us remember that uh, last month late last month NZ Steel got a $140 million subsidy on your and my dime, taxpayer dime, for decarbonization. NZ Steel, whose parent company in the last year has uh, had a turnover in, in billions, suddenly needed in a recession the New Zealand taxpayers to build about. Now, you know, call me cynical. And I, I am cynical. I will openly admit it. And the last two years have made me even more cynical. But uh, I wonder whether the fact that NZ Steel have been really pushing the DEI, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion initiatives in their uh, business, have they got something to do with it? You know, I I don't know. But for now, just before Dawn and I go, I'm going to leave you with this short clip from Diversity Works. This is a New Zealand organization that is pushing these initiatives across different corporates for now. But rest assured, it's going to come to your doorstep very soon. And this is what NZ Steel speaks about in one of their videos here. So here goes. In 2010, we had female participation on site of around 7%. And one of the goals that was set was to get to 25% by 2022. We're now in 2021 and we've hit 20.2%. And we've re-looked at that and said, you know what, we can go bigger. So that's where this 40-40-20 goal has come from. We want 40% male, 40% female, and 20% gender diverse. And along with the work that we've been doing in the cultural identity, gender identity, all of the life ages and stages, it's all about anyone can work here. Um, Historically, it has been that heavy male-dominated industry, and the tasks have been very manual handling. So, what do you think, Don? They have certainly ticked off quite a few boxes, haven't they? They certainly have. When you when you hear about the um, 40, 40, 20 ratio of um, male, female and diversity, uh, Gender diverse diverse. genders, gender diversity, uh, yeah, you just wonder how woke 20%. can you get. Yeah. I am pretty sure, according uh, to whatever statistics I've seen, that is not in line with the gender diverse uh, demographic as a part of the population. It is, you know, somewhere in the very low single digit, the number of people who identify as gender diverse. And, okay, you want to have 20% gender diverse and cultural identity and all of that. But how do you figure that out? Is in now the, because, you know, self-employed now uh, farming, is it now that when you go for a job interview or put in an application form, do you have to tick box what your sexuality here is the employer demanding those sort of details uh, now 
well, any employer that is, is um, to me just so damn woke, um, I wouldn't want to work for them. Uh, but, you know, maybe that is the case with some, um, I, I wouldn't surprise me in government departments, uh, wouldn't have thought about in New Zealand Steel, but, you know, there you go. You, know, you just but yeah. don't oh, know. You're not, you're not down, or this could just be a coincidence, and they have just managed to get 140 million off us. <laughs> Because they obviously need it more, but we're getting, that's a, yeah. we're getting this stuff rammed down our throat all the time, and it's you know people think it's going to be normalizing it over time. And things when you get people constantly giving you messaging and right down to our school children, um, they are trying to change that demographic. They are almost saying we will have it because we've talked about it for so long. I mean, I know that sounds uh, a bit weird, but. Why else would they be doing it at such a young age? Why would they try be trying to uh, talk to eight to twelve year olds about um, sexual uh, preferences and identities? I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, and of course, you you sent us some stuff the other day that was about the the bookmarks in libraries. Yeah, so it seems scam- that scandalous. I spoke to Rodney Hyde, and Rodney said his kids got the same at Arrowtown Library. So, yeah. yeah. 10, 11-year-olds, uh, the bookmarks have a list of titles that they should be reading if they are pansexual and, yeah, a whole lot of other details just yeah. on their own bookmarks. Which just, titles? Just weird. Just weird. And, and outrageously weird, in my opinion. But um, if New Zealanders think this is normal behaviour, I'd be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. So, so would I. But I think without further ado, we should head off to a break. And just after that, we'll come back with Dr. Tom Sheehan, who very graciously, despite his hectic schedule, took out half an hour to chat with me and Don about the methane madness and how the science does not stock up. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Our number is 2057 for any email text feedback. And our email is inbox at the rate reality check. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Greenwashed with Don and Jaspreet. Um, and it's our privilege today to have uh, Dr. Tom Sheehan as our special guest. Uh, doc, Dr. Sheehan is a, has a degree in physics from Massachusetts Institute of Technology and a well-known science, scientist and presenter on climate issues and many other things, but he's also president of the Science and Environment Policy Project, SEPP, and president and CEO of Western Technology Incorporated. And so Tom's been doing a tour around New Zealand uh, at at the request of some farming groups and um, especially led uh, initially by Dr. Jock Allison, who Tom wrote a paper with in 2018 on climate and, and other things or, you know, uh, Hard to explain exactly the wide-ranging remit that had, but um, last night in Invercargill, uh, there was a very good crowd at a hotel, and Tom addressed them, and at the end of it, he got a standing ovation. Now, I've been to a lot of um, forums in New Zealand uh, on issues such as this, but I've never seen a standing ovation. The crowd were attentive. The, the crowd were um, there to learn and listen to something they'd never heard before. And so we're honoured to have uh, Dr. Sheehan in our presence this morning. We're giving, uh, we've got half an hour with him perhaps uh, before he gets to his last two functions today. Um, He's got stamina like an ox. So uh, let's build into it, Tom. Welcome to Greenwashed. 
Um, great to have you on the show. I'm glad to be here, Don. I'm happy to join you. Yeah, well, I hope they've fed you well in our um, establishments of Invercargill. Um, you know, I'm sitting about 10 k's from where you are, and um, it's another great day in the south. I hope you've enjoyed your your trip down this way. Uh, I know, as you, as we just said, uh, the, the the people that came to hear you last night were enthralled. Your presentation's about an hour long, and what were the key messages that you thought uh, or that you present really? I mean, an hour, if you can give us a synopsis of how you present your case. Sure, I'm glad to. The very first principle that I emphasize enormously is that there is such a thing as the scientific method, and that's how we learn, that's how um, mankind progresses to the extent over many centuries that the scientific method has been followed, um, success and prosperity follow. The key to that is that your data, the measurements is what is supreme and your theory has to match the measurements. And if your theory doesn't match the measurements then go back and fix your theory, do something different, um, try a different hypothesis. The importance of data in the scientific method is supreme. You could say the data trumps theory. So people over the years, particularly with regarding climate science, have advanced various theories, and not too many of them have been successful. But recently, these two gentlemen from North America, William Van Weingarten in York, uh, Ontario, Canada, and William Happer at Princeton in the United States did a remarkable calculation that has been much too difficult to ever do in the century that has preceded us. And what they found was excellent agreement with actual measurements. The satellites for 40 some years now have been making measurements about the temperature of the earth as seen from above. And by golly, the calculations of Weingarten and Happer match those. Okay, now once you've got an agreement between theory and experiment, you can believe in your theory. And then you can take your theory and start uh, evaluating it for different circumstances, different uh, hypotheses, different assumptions, and you get the results that are applicable to conditions that you don't have before you. In particular, what happens if you double carbon dioxide? What happens if you double methane? You can believe a theory that has already been validated, vindicated by matching between theory and data. And that's exactly what they went ahead and did. And that's why we now know with great confidence that increasing CO2 or increasing methane is not going to make hardly any difference at all in the climate in the years ahead. And that's a really important message because if uh, a government or an international body wants to stop you or uh, tax you, they shouldn't do it because there is no important change in the climate going to come from any variation in methane or uh, nitrous oxide 
or CO2. And so the central message of what I have to say has to do with following the scientific method. And when you do, you've got a dependable theory. And then your dependable theory says, don't worry about uh, these greenhouse gases anymore. Fantastic. And so, listeners, I forgot to say at the outset, the reason um, Dr. Sheehan's tour in New Zealand at the request of, of a group of us was, and I chaired last night's meeting in Invercargill, by the way, um, methane is an irrelevant gas is the title of his tour. So the reason we focused on methane as the heading was, of course, uh, in New Zealand, there is an attempt by a group, uh, of what well, by the parliament, to tax animals in New Zealand for their emissions of methane and nitrous oxide. And there is a bunch of farming groups who seem to be willing to throw New Zealand farmers under the bus, uh, even though they've got this information uh, that's that's come out in recent years showing that the, the previous 25 years of sort of telling New Zealanders that all our animals were bad, sort of putting a, a guilty syndrome over all the New Zealand animals is fallacious. And so with that in mind, your key messages um, and and what you've just talked about, the, the scientific method, the key messages from your, your talks really are uh, in terms of methane. How can you short, how can you paraphrase them, Tom? Well, methane really is a greenhouse gas. It qualifies by the definition. That is, it absorbs infrared radiation. So it's a greenhouse gas, but the reason it's irrelevant is the amount of radiation absorbs is negligible. Methane uh, is outnumbered by water, H2O, in the atmosphere, enormously outnumbered. There's 1.8 parts per million of methane. And if you look at water, which is one or 2% on a daily basis, just due to what we call humidity, the uh, H2O content of the atmosphere would be 15,000 parts per million. Under those circumstances, water greatly outnumbers methane. And the reality of uh, radiation and absorption is that uh, water and methane both absorb in the exact same region of the spectrum. So methane gets beat every time. And uh, there are other parameters too, having to do with the energy of the Earth's spectrum, etc. But mainly, the importance of methane is swamped by the much greater importance of H2O. And one of the points that needs to be emphasized again and again is that the way in which the IPCC approached the problem of greenhouse gases neglected the importance of water. And when you neglect something as important as water, you're on the wrong path and you're going to get the wrong answers. And sure enough, that's what they did. Thanks, Tom. I do should uh, tell the listeners I attended the meeting last night and it was a privilege to meet you, to listen to you afterwards. And sitting in the audience, I could hear a few gasps going up around me. My two key takeaways were you spoke about saturation, that most of the heating potential occurs in the initial bits. And, you know, that's happened long past. You were showing us uh, that all the graphs, all the gases follow the same graph, a really high initial warming potential, which we crossed, I think, well before the Industrial uh, Revolution, as per your graph. Would that be right? So any Absolutely. Difference, yes. Yeah. So anything we do today 
according to you and the graphs and the models that you showed, which had complete concurrence with uh, real life data, that's we've gone past that point a long time ago. And we still seem to be thinking that, hey, New Zealand, I mean, how big are we on the world stage? Sometimes I think we have a very overinflated sense of our importance. What is uh, your, what was your reaction when you first heard that New Zealand would be the first country in the world to tax its farmers for methane? And it's it's big money, Tom. They're talking of 144 million in the initial years per year. Well, uh, I look at the situation in which I think the United Nations, the IPCC, has invited New Zealand to set a good example for other nations and be the first to voluntarily commit economic suicide. Um, the harm to the New Zealand economy by following any of these ideas of uh, restrictions, um, regulation, taxation, would vastly outweigh any benefit. Because there is no benefit if the gases involved don't make any difference. And that's the reality we have. On the saturation, uh, you have characterized it exactly correctly. It is definitely the way every one of these gases behaves. And the uh, water is so completely saturated that nobody cares what water does. Carbon dioxide saturated about 99% of all the radiation it could absorb. Now, methane at 1.8 parts per million is down at a much lower level and is not up to saturation yet. However, as I said before, there's so much more water in the atmosphere than there is methane that methane can't compete with the water molecules for absorbing radiation. So the irrelevancy of methane to the physics of the atmosphere says to me that it would be irrelevant to tax methane. And that is, and by the way, that goes for nitrous oxide as well. It's a very similar gas to methane, absorbs in the same part of the spectrum, does the exact same thing, and is equally irrelevant. So, so Tom, it's interesting. It's just occurred to me that, do you know of any um, gases in the world that have been taxed successfully by administrations? I, I'm thinking sulfur dioxide had a tax on it somewhere in the States at one point, but it didn't last for long. Am I right? Um, there have been taxes and regulations put on certain gases the biggest gas that is poisonous that we really worked hard to get rid of is carbon monoxide, which is poisonous and which came out of people's exhaust pipes from the beginning of automobiles until the 1970s when the requirement for cleaning up the exhaust was uh, introduced and everyone now has a catalytic converter on their car, which converts carbon monoxide to carbon dioxide. Because there's platinum in there, that increased the price of a car by something like $500 or $1,000, but it did the job. You go to these big cities nowadays, you can drive around without choking to death because uh, the stuff that's in the air used that would have been carbon monoxide got fixed and is now carbon dioxide. So the carbon dioxide uh, is a good example of how Legislation, regulation, taxation can accomplish an important goal. Right. And by the way, sulfur dioxide was similarly treated as it comes out of factories a lot. And that, too, has gone away pretty much now. Fantastic. So, look, 
we've we've covered um very quickly um as as i asked a uh the, the real crux of your your topics but one that new zealand constantly gets beaten up on uh, by its own media um and by the way listeners uh tom's been here about 10 days and run several meetings and there's not one column inch being uh dedicated in mainstream media to his uh his topics uh that is a disappointment shame on mainstream media um but the other point that we get beaten up on all the time in new zealand is around global warming potential so that's uh relative to co2 and often we're told that in a hundred year time span methane has a global warming potential depending on the reporter but mostly 28 times co2 and nitrous oxide close to 300. tell us your view on the relevancy of global warming potential based on what you have observed and are talking about is it relevant at all no it's a mistake it's an erroneous calculation and I am surprised and disappointed that people who should know better haven't noticed this and figured it out. They were trying to form a ratio of which is more important, methane or carbon dioxide, and how much. Let's get a number of relative importance. They then proceeded to make some very faulty assumptions about both carbon dioxide in the long run and methane in the long run. And that led them to a calculation in which the numerator was an ordinary number, the denominator was extremely close to zero. And if you remember your fourth grade mathematics, you can't divide by zero, but when you try to divide by a number close to zero, you get a quotient that is whoppingly big. And that's where a number like 28 came from. And by the way, nitrous oxide, which is even less of a threat, uh, wound up with a ratio of uh, GWP of about 315. Uh, that's an absurd number. It has nothing to do with physical reality. It's entirely due to defective calculations. Sure. So, so just to um, clarify, I, I'm aware that refrigerants are used uh, in our air conditioning and our uh, heat pumps we have in New Zealand. Uh, they have sort of... Um, different refrigerants run one that currently is being phased out in New Zealand is uh 410A it supposedly has a GWP of about 2000 times CO2 according to the data that I read um is that relevant because we are aware that refrigerants can be deleterious to the atmosphere is that right well again there is such small quantities uh, you could take all the refrigerators in everybody's house in the world, uh, break them apart today, release all the Freon, and you would never notice it at all because these are real tiny amounts. The, the huge number that they calculated is just another example of trying to divide by a number close to zero. Same mistake, but bigger because there is even less Freons. But again, the atmosphere is a big place. Carbon dioxide, we talk about in gigatons per year. Water would be giga, gigatons. It's just way much more. And it, the absorption by water completely swamps anything that the Freons could possibly do. Right. So, so look, you know, it, 
listeners, you, it, it's amazing how we have been treated to 25 years or more of this story that has slowly become so ingrained in our national psyche that uh, even the farmer magazines um, ham up this this big risk to New Zealand uh, and big big risk of the atmosphere if we continue with our naughty little naughty animal emissions. Um, it's now deeply entrenched in our trade negotiations. Everyone seems to talk about uh, if you don't do this now, if you don't tax your farmers and and they they try to uh, infer, uh, infer that if you don't get your emissions reduced, uh, there will be trade barriers. And so we're locking ourselves into some sort of serious stra- uh, serious straitjacket. Is the American farmers are they getting this sort of pressure? Do you know? Uh, not that I know of. There is no uh, effort in any way to tax uh, methane in America. However, the government is attempting to regulate uh, methane by getting people to uh, abandon their gas stoves in the kitchen and switch to electric stoves. Um, I have an electric stove in my house and it works fine, but I got nothing against anybody who's got a gas stove. Uh, The attempt by the government in America to eliminate gas stoves, I believe, is sure to fail because the people will just not go along with it. They'll reject it. And uh, so I don't think the effort to regulate against methane in America is going to be successful. And I don't think it'll be successful in any other country of the world either. You spoke last night, Tom, about uh, how the media discourse in the U.S. has now come to the stage where everyone openly laughs. You know, why did you break up with your girlfriend? I think that is the example you cited. Well, climate change and so on. So how how have things reached there? What are the people seeing there, you know, that New Zealanders are not seeing? Because out here, the ideology is so deeply ingrained, as Don just mentioned, a joke like that wouldn't pass muster here. People believe it so deeply. Well, what happened starting some, oh, 35 years ago, Mm. uh, Al Gore, uh, an important politician in the 20th century, um, started beating the drum for global warming and be afraid and everything's going to be bad and we're going to have terrible troubles and our cities are going to be flooded by the rising sea, etc. About two decades later, people look back and said, you know, not one single prediction of that type came true. And we have late night comedians in um, on television in, in America that drive the conversation to a certain extent. And they began ridiculing uh, Gore and the global warming thing some uh, probably a decade ago. And now it has become commonplace for everybody to ridicule that. One of the reasons for the emphasis on methane is because people have grown tired of hearing about carbon dioxide. And um, the reaction of the public is completely at variance with the reaction of those in the political theater. Um, The concern about global warming among the public is very, very low. Unfortunately, school children have been taught to be worried about uh, global warming. But the uh, the grown-ups in general are not too concerned about it anymore. 
mainly because they've been told over and over again that it's really, really bad, and it hasn't turned out to be bad at all. It almost seems to me like the next uh, person we should bring along on a tour should be an American comedian. I don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. Uh, maybe we could bring on over John Kerry because, to me, he's a comedy act and 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 play. Uh, maybe Tom, you've got an opinion about his recent <laughs> attack on farming in America, where he is saying that we need to reduce effectively the a large chunk of the beef herd. We need to just get rid of that. So. Um, he's playing he's playing games because, as you say, I think the, the game is this, the CO2 argument that um, Ocasio-Cortez and others and the Green New Deal proponents have been on about for years is fail, failing them and they need to find some other whipping boy. And it seems to me that the beef animals of America are now in John Kerry's sights, as they are in Ireland and many other places around the world. Uh, it seems to me in New Zealand, by the way, and I am getting political again, that it is convenient to whip up a fervour of um, angst against the New Zealand animal population as well, because um, the CO2 argument is not palatable to the to the to the mums and dads and, and paying their power bills and the like. Uh, so we're in a bit of a bind, but I think, uh, Jaspreet, if we need a comedy act, I think John Kerry and a few other politicians could be their prime acts. Oh, good. As a matter of fact, uh, Kerry is seen with a certain comic uh, uh, outlook because of his luxurious personal lifestyle that shows he's such a hypocrite that the public in America pretty much dismisses Kerry as a serious spokesman about climate. Um, he's worn out his welcome. Uh, he did. He was a candidate for president in 2004, but since then he has taken on various posts in Democratic administrations, and he has been beating the same drum for a long time while going jet-setting around and uh, living in mansions and a whole bunch of things like that that are clearly wasteful of energy, and the public doesn't like that. And when you don't like a guy, you dismiss the things he's preaching about. And that's exactly what's happened to John Kerry. And golly, it couldn't happen to a more deserving fellow. Well, it, it's interesting, um, Tom. I'm going to be driving you to um, a couple of meetings today, and we're going to drive along the presidential highway between Gore and Clinton. And that, <laughs> that just happens to be the highway that uh, was coined, had that name um, attached to it when uh, President Clinton was in power and Al Gore was his deputy, I think. And about 2003, when I was one of the leading lights in the fight against ridiculous taxes campaign, we um, drove the petition that started in Invercargill and ended up in Wellington uh, along that highway. And I had to hand over to the um, Otago president of Federated Farmers at the time. So I'll show you, you'll, you'll feel you'll feel it today, Tom. You'll absolutely feel the power of Clinton and Gore. I see. Okay. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> hey, so, so and that I I've we're sort of deflecting from the real serious stuff here. Um, and I don't want to do that because we are talking about a real serious um imposition that potentially if the farming groups of New Zealand continue their nonsense uh in the Wellington machinery of selling out to the noise um of the Wellington Beltway. Uh, we've got a big problem. So it's a serious issue and every New Zealander should be worried about it. Provincial New Zealand is every dollar taken out of provincial New Zealand uh, 
to feed this machine called um, methane research or, or methane research organizations is a is a dollar that can't be spent in the provinces. And that's a problem. It is, yeah. Um, the dollars is a big issue on all of this in every country. Um, you want to tax methane in the United States? Every guy who has the rank of assistant manager at a McDonald's can calculate what the price of a big cheeseburger is going to be if methane is taxed and or driven out or in any way the price of meat goes way up. They know how to calculate how far they have to raise their prices. And when the American public finds out the price of a McDonald hamburger is going to go from three bucks to six bucks, or a Big Mac is going to go from $6 to $12, they are going to scream no. And that's the reality in our yeah. country. And I imagine that if the people of New Zealand, the non-farmers, knew how much the prices were going to go up for some of these erroneous and fruitless policies, they would scream no just the same. Yep, there's nothing quite like an economic reality check, no matter how much we try to preempt the pain for everyone. I'm not sure if you're aware, uh, Tom, so our national inflation is tracking at just under 7%, but behind the farm gate, it is closer to 20%. Farmers are really hurting here. This weekend, this Friday coming, I am scheduled to attend uh, a program arranged by a local publican here about uh, rural suicide prevention. And we have a couple of farmer advocates coming. And the irony has never escaped me. We are driving the herding the farmers down this route, absolutely trashing their mental health. And then we have, you know, we decide that putting a Band-Aid on that is, is all right. But, you know, just to end the interview, you've been here close to two weeks now. You've been to the field days, so many meetings. We've really run you ragged. What what impression have you had of, of over your talks with you know meeting farmers and others? What takeaways have you got as you leave New Zealand soon? The farmers of New Zealand are better than farmers in other parts of the world. They're more efficient. They're smarter. They know how to manage their animals and their crops and their business of farming. And I think they are to be honored rather than taxed or uh, uh, regulated. Um, New Zealand's got a farming industry it can be proud of and it should be proud of on the world scene. And instead of being the volunteer to go first to commit economic suicide, I think New Zealand should be the one that sets the leadership for the rest of the world in farming practices. So I have had a very nice visit here for um, close to two weeks in which I've learned an awful lot about farming. And I think your farmers are setting the standard for good performance in the rest of the world. Well, it's gratifying to hear, Tom. And uh, I often say that uh, New Zealand farmers from 1985, and I know that seems a long time ago, we set the international gold standard uh, in production um, of, of our animal products, and it was subsidy-free, production subsidy-free. That's the gold standard of, of an, an ETS. It's an efficiency trading scheme that the world should be proud of. Um, why we've got into this next ETS mode, this emissions trading scheme, makes no sense to those of us that were, were, were at the painful beginning of the subsidy-free period. Uh, those of us that were starting our career then really were under the pump. 
Um, so it, it is like uh, we are the convenient whipping boy for the tax man in Wellington and running the, you know, the agendas of those people that don't produce much themselves other than regulation. So, yeah, look, that was a long statement to end. I, I have to say, uh, again, listeners, Reality Check Radio is really um, grateful for people like you, Tom, coming on and telling the story. Uh, I'm in your debt. The the farmers of New Zealand that uh, have attended your meetings are in uh, your debt. Um, the standing ovation last night was well and truly deserved. And um, may you get some sleep uh, very soon because you've put a lot of effort in. Your stamina is great, uh, but we're just honoured to have had you in our presence. And if one thing can be achieved is we get our farmer organisations to stop sitting on the damn fence and putting us under the bus as they're doing currently. So, look, if that's the end game here for us um, and you've been part of achieving it, then fantastic. Great to have you on our show, uh, Reality Check Radio Greenwashed with Jasper and Don. And that was Dr. Tom Sheehan. Thanks very much, Tom. Thank you very much, Don, as well. Thank you All so right. much, Don. Bye-bye. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to uh, Greenwashed with Don and Jaspreet. And um, I hope you enjoyed the half hour with Tom Sheehan, Dr. Tom Sheehan, the American physicist. Um, he he really gave New Zealand farmers some plaudits. Uh, you know, they're the best in the world. Uh, we don't even talk about that nearly enough as our, as our, in our own sectors. Uh, but on top of that, he told us we need to grow a spine as well. And that's true. Uh, we've now got information that says that methane and nitrous oxide can never be a problem to the temperature, can never cause um, damaging warming. And yet we've got no agency in New Zealand willing to even meet with Dr. Tom Sheehan or or the people that wrote those papers, other than people like me and the groups that I mingle with. So, you know, I was honoured to be chairman. I was honoured to have Tom in our company, but we've got work to do because if you were to take methane out of the New Zealand and nitrous oxide out of the New Zealand, let alone the world inventories, and just focused on carbon dioxide, I think there would be a whole different narrative. And moreover, New Zealand would be absolutely net zero already. Uh, The gaming that's going on through this emissions inventory is unacceptable. And so we've just got to, got to get on through here. We've got to, got to work the, work the machinery of, of not only New Zealand, but internationally, we have to, we have to get this sorted. Gravy trains, you know, and we spoke about the fact there is hundreds of millions riding on this. Hundreds of millions, literally. The first uh, year they said something like 113 to 145 million. What's mm. 30 million of variation? And then another 40 to implement or what they call it, administer it. You can see exactly why this has been happening. There is there is money there to be made. There is farming to be destroyed. And yeah, uh, if you think I'm exaggerating, well, you're entitled to your opinion. But what's coming very clearly and very fast down the line now, it is the writings on the wall. And I think most farmers see it now, Don. 
Well, they do. And of course, you highlight every uh, opportunity, the forestry growth, uh, the carbon forestry, as they call it, uh, uh, and special privilege. Um, think they've got. Uh, you know, it's certainly a damaging concept. I, I've spoken to forestry consultants who don't like it, but most forestry consultants do like it because there's clearly a measurement and an management opportunity there for them. Uh, but, you know, for what? I I tried to push this away in 2008, but the government of the day, they were hell-bent on being you know, compliant to these emissions uh, stories that were going around and giving the forestry sector a privilege, and it's a totally misguided privilege. I, I have never resolved from that. The media has has their role, the mainstream media has their role to play in this between pushing and, you know, the hysteria about carbon. I got the mailer uh, day before yesterday from the Overseas Investment Office, their monthly email that lets you know amongst other assets that have been sold to overseas investors, how many farms have gone into forestry under the special forestry test. Now, remember, we are an outlier amongst other countries. We are the only ones that allow 100% emissions offsetting through forestry. And it's no wonder that, you know, big corporates make a beeline for New Zealand because we are we are for sale. So I saw in this email five more properties, five, yeah, there were five approvals under the special forestry test. One, a small one, was already under managed forestry, but four others, Port Blakely, Benita Forests, Cory Forestry, and of course, Inca, the investment arm of your sustainable furniture, looking at you, Auckland, when it comes, the, the big shed comes to you next year, Inca buying up uh, a large, I think a 9,000 unit uh, stock unit farm in Wairoa district near Gisborne for forestry. All of these are sheep and beef, dry stock properties that have been converted into pine forestry. And the government uh, has a goal to tell us that, oh, the rules have been tightened. It's not been easy. It's you know not very easy anymore. But I'm looking at the new rules that they say is how the new forestry test that will be now these overseas investors will have to jump through the hoops over. They don't seem to be a lot harder. And the last two years we've had the word community and, you know, we are all together a team of 5 million. I don't see the word community being referred to even once in the benefits and fallouts that are being referred to here. Not one of the factors that are going to be assessed when looking at an overseas corporate converting prime pastoral land to forestry is how it's going to impact the neighbors around the, you know, the rural communities. How is it going to affect the very fabric of those places? Nada, zilch, can't find anything done. No, and, and that has been assessed by, of course, the sheep and beef sector um, in my area um, 20 years ago in Southern South or 30 years ago, it was assessed by that community at the time. Consultants definitely do that community. Um, uh, and you know, the, the way it messes with a community when you take out farmland uh, productions, farming and put forestry in. Uh, but on the other side, you have forestry uh, consultants and forestry agencies saying, 
sort of account of you. So, uh, yeah, who's right? I mean, I, I read something the other day that says that forestry outdoes um, farming in much of this marginal country that that is in that in some of these um, uh, special forestry test areas. I know that we're very worried about the lowland farms that have gone into forestry and and medium hill country farm farming that was certainly grazing sheep and beef, but some of it is is steeper than that even. So. You know, it seems to me that anyone can make up a story to suit their occasion. And I dare say you're, it's all, all about politics. You're uh, you're allowing a bureaucrat to make that decision that says, oh, no, based on all the boxes that I've had to work through, this guy gets the tick and that one doesn't. But as you have highlighted, Jaspreet, it seems to have gone on unabated in the last month, even when we said we were told there was a harder hurdle to, to jump. And on the back of... Talks by Tom Sheehan, Hapawin Garden, and yeah. more and more, as you know, that how insignificant all of these not. gases, the greenhouse, the anthropogenic warming is. Why are we destroying New Zealand? Why are we converting oh. New Zealand into New Finland, for want of a better word? Yeah, well, that's 100% bang on the money, um, Jasper. That's why I've been banging on this for as long as I can remember. There is no need. As Jeff Duffy, our last guest a week ago, um, said, uh, water vapour overshadows everything um, mm-hmm. anyway. And that's what Tom Sheehan's um, physics uh, presentations talks about. There, There is nothing in this to see here that should be creating a massive industry for foresters, for carbon traders, and for any sector that is milking the net zero regime. We are we are um, monetizing stuff that is not needed. The world would have got on just fine doing what I've always talked about, and I know it sounds like I'm like the king of the world when I say this: efficient resource use, letting the market decide, would have always got us to the point where we're going to get to anyway in time, which is perhaps a transition to um, more electrification, a more electrified um, future, uh, but. But we're way ahead of it. And moreover, New Zealand's being arrogant because we aren't in energy poverty like some uh, countries are going to put themselves, like Australia will likely be in energy poverty if they keep closing down coal-fired power stations. Um, that's when the political uh, rubber will hit the road and there will be hell to pay. And I saw, just as an aside, if we talk about virtue signaling, I saw um, a hailstorm in Nebraska decimated about, uh, yeah, Hundreds. It looked like hundreds of acres of solar panels in one storm. So, you know how to mess with your um, electricity network? Just have a hailstorm and a <laughs> snowstorm. Anyway, we yeah. Uh, look, none of this, none of the stuff sits well with me, Jasper. No, and know. I would, I would really highlight the fact that IKEA every time these organizations they hawk their environmental credentials, their sustainability credentials. The property that IKEA's um, Inca has brought is in Gisborne is not far from the Wairoa district. And Wairoa district is the one that actually won uh, a major victory of the forestry sector with the judge agreeing that their council, the Wairoa district council, had the right to increase rates on forestry land due to negative community well-being. There mm. are studies on this, a mm. major, uh, you know, Outla, outreach programs where they have reached on, out to people and spoken to them. 
And one of these reports says that farmers in Wairoa expressed overwhelmingly negative attitudes towards increased afforestation, fears of community decline, job losses, closure of retail outlets, and service provisions. Subsequently, after the forestry just mushroomed there, the narrative shifted to attacks against corporate forestry, environmental effects, including those from slash management, harvesting, fire risks, as well as cynicism about carbon credits, climate change, and this one, grants for tree planting. Mm -hmm. So, but where is where are these factors? When you have, I mean, our leaders have gone on endlessly about well-being. Where is the well-being in this, in the whole uh, test when they push forward these special forestry conversions? Where is the well-being in this? Nothing. Well, it seems money grows in trees and uh, nothing's going to come between them and a gravy train. Can't argue with any of that. And of course, in the um, last uh, segment of one of these consultants' report was uh, the, the lines, there is a need for uh, for work with all parties to co-develop a way forward that better aligns community expectations and outcomes with the multiple goals sought. Social impact assessment has a key part to play in this approach. I mean, it's not like it's not written. Um, people are talking about it, but they just seem to be being ignored. Um, that's not uncommon, of course, uh, when you're dealing with um, self-interest, corp crony corporatism, it's not unusual. And it's sadly, most of us that are at the um, other end of the spectrum just don't understand the, the machinery that works uh, at a political level to get what you want when you're a big player with a lot of money. And if you think this is just affecting rural New Zealand, you've, you've got another thing coming. It, it, Wellington, it, you're not far from Gisborne, are you? A few hours down the road. And uh, how many billions are you spending on the Let's Get Wellington Moving project? Yeah, well, that's a massive story, a massive story. And I see there's a, a large amount of tension coming in, in that part yep. of the uh, country. As as people, are, you are having, looking at, by all accords, what uh, few surveys I have seen, there are retailers worried worried about what the future in central Wellington is going to be like. There are some who already sold up, shut shop. Yeah. And it's going to be a gridlock. Uh, I mean, you're already gridlocked, but it's soon going to be not a very nice place to visit anymore. Well, and it used to be the coolest little capital. What was the numbers they were talking? It was in the billions, wasn't it? 7.5 billion seems to ring a bell, though. Yeah. yeah, so... I'm, if I was a ratepayer in downtown Wellington, I wouldn't be too happy about that. Uh, so what are they expecting? Is there something about shovel-ready funding through the COVID response? <laughs> Will I dig it up? I mean, I'm being facetious again. I mean, I, I look at downtown Queenstown. Um, it was all dug up under the COVID response uh, cash, I gather. Uh, mm. Yeah, God knows how Wellington's going to dig itself up and sort itself out. But, you know, I know I glibly say build a wall, but in the end... The New Zealand taxpayers' cash feeds Wellington in a massive way. Uh, so I'd imagine all of us will be paying for some co, what would it be, co-funding. Um, co There'll be some co-funding from the rest of us. Yes, Don. And I <laughs> had uh, sent you an email about the Let's Get Wellington moving project. And I, uh, I got an email. I'm on the mailing list of Talk Wellington dot org dot nz 
And they sent an email last week. Let's get Wellington moving. Please, councillors, keep your eyes on the prize because there's some who at this stage are, you know, thinking their decision. And they, the, the, just the whole glibly how this whole email that was posted there, that email your councillors, tell them what's at stake. At stake is the entire Let's Get Wellington Moving program with its remarkable 60% funding from the rest of New Zealand. No exaggeration. Here's how. So the rest of us, are we subsidizing Wellington to the tune of 60%? Meanwhile, out here, we have rural communities absolutely at this point struggling to keep their roads and bridges open. And we are supposedly the most productive province, aren't we, Don? Well, one of them. I, I wouldn't yeah. like to say in, we in compar- are. Yeah, yeah, in I, comparison I to a small population. Yeah, well, we've got 100,000 people putting out, uh, is it including the smelt of 14% of our um, export earnings or volumes and earnings? Um, it is, wouldn't be unexpected that Wellington is being fed by taxpayers, uh, Jaspreet. Imagine, uh, I think there's, is it 14,000 new employees went into the Wellington machinery since 2017 that's that's a feeding frenzy there is and the stock wellington email if you have a look at this one it is it's puts it out in absolutely there is nothing left to the imagination they say that approval by the two local partners your wellington council and uh, greater wellington regional council must come first in june and july for their 40 percent and then the third partner, Waka Kutahi, will give it the green light with the remaining 60%. Hello. I think we began this uh, session today, Don, talking about equity. Where is the equity in Waka Kutahi giving Wellington 60% of this project? Well, I dare say, um, well, it's, it doesn't seem fair, but on the other side of it, um, in, a, in the district council sense, uh, we also get financial assistance rating for our roads. Mm. Um, so I'm not sure how but, that's But this, this disproportionately, nah, I would uh, I would bet you on that one. I have some <laughs> figures and they don't quite stack up. So yeah, my, my point being here before I ramble on too long and I delay our next guest is the fact that the methane madness, the decarbonization madness is not just affecting rural New Zealand. Now, nah, our urban cousins, you're going to get a, your fair share of the pie there. Well, that's true, and that's why this net zero ambition is starting to unravel around the world. Sweden's um, decided to call it quits. The UK is starting to uh, sweat it, and uh, and many of the others are, are doing the same. So why would little old New Zealand just sort of hang in there till the end? Uh, I dare say it's because we've got this culture of other people spending, you know, spending other people's money is deeply entrenched in our national um national psyche now i mean it doesn't matter where you look even at a local level i see so many entities that just look for other people to pay their way so they look at into this into the uh pot of gold and they say how much of that can i have so we're in a bad spot and when i read this last thing jasper that uh of uh 200 oh no 500 companies worldwide i think there was only a handful that when they were assessed to managing uh, to apl- complying with their ESGs, that absolutely could be 
rigorously tested to be in sync with the ESGs, the rest were green washing. Yeah, weren't they? And uh, just before we go to our next guest, John, you had an aside, didn't you, about uh, somebody asking in one of uh, Tom Sheehan's meetings about how their son was not able to get a loan in Australia? Yeah, and, and that was around uh, because he was trying to buy a farm and he didn't have the right uh, compliance tickets against his name, so, so to speak. He hadn't mm-hmm. um, hadn't gone through the machinery of um, envir- you know, all, all the ESGs, really. And uh, so funding was not going to happen for him. So I'm not quite sure how that's going to play out. But by the way, uh, even our banks are now starting to play that in card in New Zealand. Uh, Westpac is making loans uh, a sustainable option, they call it, which is um, code mm-hmm. for they'll charge more for the people that don't tick the boxes. So yep. every borrower is going to be hooked into a regime that has massive command and control around it. Um, how long we can t- take that in, I don't know. I see in Western Australia, they now have got some other rules coming at them where you can't even dig a post hole without talking to the um, the native, you know, the Aborigines or the Torres, well, whatever, uh, the First Nations people, as they call them. Um, $160 an hour, compli- you know, you've got to have your, whatever you're going to do is going to have $160 an hour against. This is getting rotten to the core, and I can only hope that one day it all falls over. Yep, it dies a natural death. But uh, without further ado, Don and I will take a break now. But when we come back, we're going to come back with, Don, you want to introduce? Yeah, Dr. John Maunder. Uh, what I, I introduce him as the the godfather of New Zealand meteorology, um, yeah, the weather, weather man. And John's in his 90s. And man, is he passionate about his subject and really lucid about it. So look, Sit back and enjoy Dr. John Maunder. You might like to make yourself a cup of coffee, a tea or green tea if that's your poison. See you in a minute. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for... A reality check. Reality check. RCR. Reality check radio. Rational discussion. Common sense. And open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. Welcome back to RCR Greenwash with Jasper and Don. And um, in common with many of our past month's interviews, we have a fantastic guest for you this morning. And uh, it seems like I can't keep off the topic of weather, climate, you name it, net zero, we're just on that all the time because it is so deeply entrenched in the New Zealand psyche. We've got to talk about it as much as we can. 
So it is our pleasure today to have um, Dr. John Maunder on our show. I would suggest he is probably the father, if not the godfather of New Zealand weather. And so welcome, John. We're looking forward to spending some time with you um, right from the beginning, really. I mean, I don't think it's any any uh, news to people who have read about you You're in your 10th decade of life. Oh, and, and that's fantastic. So you were born at the beginning of the Depression or during the Depression and um, lived through a world war. Just tell us about those formative years, and then we'll build into your uh, your academic career. Okay. Well, I was born in born in Nelson in 1932, 3rd of August 1932, and I lived there for about six years. Um, and uh, I was always remember the, uh, uh, the that period of time. I was very fond of cats, so, so I used to bring all the cats home to my to, to my mother and father. Anyway, I went to um, primary school in Nelson. Uh, for about two years, and then my father, who was a manager, he was a manager. He was working with the Bank of New Zealand. Um, he got a job um, as manager of the Taika branch of Gold in Golden Bay. So I went over there when I was seven years old, and we, as in, as the usual thing in those days, if you lived in the, lived if you were, you know, with the um, family of the bank manager, um, you basically. Uh, uh, you you uh, you lived upstairs in the bank building bank building around around New Zealand. There's a lot of these bank buildings, two story bank buildings, and I lived there. And on the on the top floor, I could see over a, a vacant piece of land between us and the post office, and beyond that to the Tahika River. Now, as a seven year old, I was not interested. I, I had no particular interest in the weather, but um, being there, of course, I saw the flood the floods come across the rivers. Uh, from from the Tahika River to the uh, Commercial Street in uh, Tahika, and uh, I noticed that every now and again that used to flood, and I asked two questions, uh, to, or my mother and father two questions, or my or my uh, um, school teachers, why did it rain? And then I was particularly interested in not so much why it rained, but the consequences of the rain, and of course the consequence of the rain was the flood, the floods that came over the Commercial Street in Tahika. And one of my jobs that I had paid jobs was basically delivering the Nelson Evening Mail uh, along with another guy. Uh, he, he drove the car and I, I, I threw out the papers. And, uh, of course, if you had floods, you realise that uh, uh, the, the, the flooding had a quite a, a strong economic and social importance to the town. And so um, I then went, uh, uh, had to go to Nelson every now and again to go and see the dentist. And uh, I went to the a visit to the Cawthorn Institute in Nelson, and uh, I thought it was the most boring place that I'd ever been to. I'm not not particularly interested in in the the bugs and all that type of thing. So right at the end of this thing, I was, I was seven years old at that time. I said said to the guy, I said, well, "What about the weather? Where's the weather?" And so he gave me a, a tour of where the where the weather instruments were and things like that. And uh, the, the the rest is history, probably because I then. Went to uh, uh, went my father then moved to Motueka. I went to Nelson College, spent a couple of years, four years there, and then on to University of Otago, where I I was wanting wanting to be a meteorologist, and I was told uh, by the people in in Kelvin and Wellington that to be a meteorologist I had to do uh, basically um, a degree in maths and physics, 
Well, I wasn't too. I was. I was okay for that, but I wasn't. I was partic- more particularly interested in the geography of the of the physics and the thing like that, rather than the science. And um, so, basically, I, I did my degree, uh, actually finishing up at the University of Canterbury, uh, and uh, managed to get stage three three mathematics. Not quite sure how, but managed to get it. And then I joined the Met Service in nineteen fifty seven. I think it was fifty seven. And uh, no, fifty five, and uh, and so um, I then sent, and then uh, from then on, of course, um, uh, my career has been basically in in the meteorological climate system, and um, I was there at the at the um, uh, oh, I was there for about two years, and then I had this um, offer of a job at the at the the meteorological society service of Canada. And so I spent some little time there. And uh, after the course, I did a bit of a course there because uh, they wanted to give me some training in Northern Hemisphere meteorology. Uh, and there was a course, there were about 13 people on that course. And at the end of the, the guy said to me, he said, uh, what did you think of the course? And I said, well, it was all right. But I thought the, the bit that they gave us on on teaching and, uh, you know, um, that things like that kind of thing was a bit of a, irrelevant. So they said, uh, well, where would you like to go in Canada? So I said, oh, somewhere I could see the Rockies. So they gave me this job. I, I presume they worked on the basis that, that uh, I didn't need any training in, in uh, speaking or things like that and, and that kind of thing. And, um, and so uh, they gave me a job at the, in, in Clare's home, which is a little town south of Calgary. Uh, it had been used and, and is still used to a certain extent as a training ground for uh, for Air Force, Air Force uh, uh, people in the Second World War. And I've met several people who were trained in Clare's home. Anyway, the, um, I spent a little bit of time then and then I decided to come back to New Zealand and um, joined the Met Service again. And uh, then uh, from then on, it's uh, I... Uh, uh, was the, the Met Service for a little while, and then this job came up at the University of Otago um, as a lecturer in geography. So in 1961, I left the Met Service and uh, um, went across to the University of Otago and um, um, did uh, courses there, well, you know, ran courses there for about six years, during which time I, I did my PhD, as, as you couldn't do in those days. I'm not quite sure you can still do it now. But... Uh, so as a as an academic full time academic, um, they 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 said, well, you, you're going to have to take four years to do the PhD rather than two years if you're a full time. So I produced the um, the thesis, and the thesis was the. And this is where my economic side of things, although I'm not an economist, and uh, it was the effect of of climatic variations on on agricultural incomes. incomes. So I was particularly interested in. Not so much. I was not never never particularly interested in um, why an apple grows, but how many apples grow. So, and how many, and how much, you know, from a dairy point of view. Not not never particularly interested in the the, the milk production, uh, why it's like that, and all that type of thing. But I was interested in how much milk is produced. So that was where the agricultural incomes come. So and I remember. So- uh, 
So, John, could you just could I just interrupt there and ask, was that paper well received and was that well used over time? Because as farmers, we're interested to know that people like you do get your information out and people do do use it uh, for good effect. Uh, was it was it taken up well? Oh, yes, I, I think so, because the uh, uh, it was um, it, uh, particularly the, the the sort of the climate world. Uh, they realised that there was something in this kind of thing. It was it wasn't just uh, uh, sort of the science of it all. It was all it was basically. I mean, basically, how much, how many bushels per acre? Basically, the simplest thing like that. And um, so that's what happened. And then what happened then was um, um, I did my PhD, and at that stage in 1966, uh, quite a lot of opportunities around the world for people like myself. And I applied for this job at the University of Victoria. That's the real University of Victoria, not the one down in Wellington, uh, the, the, the <laughs> University of Victoria in, in, uh, in Canada, on, on, on British Columbia there. And so I spent a very happy three years there, uh, teaching students and things like that. And then uh, one particular day, I think it was 1980, 1968, um, a guy came in from Matthew & the the publishers, the British publishers, and as they did in those days, they used just to simply said, um, "These are the new books." So, uh, he, he would go around the whole university, new books in economics one hundred and one, and theology one hundred and one, and then meteorology one hundred and one, or the equivalent. And I said to him, "I said, oh, when are you people going to produce a decent textbook?" And he said, "What do you mean?" And I said, "Well, something that's got something to do with the value of the weather." Um, and um, he said, "Well, why don't you write it?" Because uh, there hadn't been there hadn't been any books like that certainly in the English language. I'd had a friend of mine, Jim McQuig, who was uh, about ten years older than I am. He did a PhD on the the, the value of weather weather information, which is uh, and I sort of got the idea from there. And so um, so after so he said, well, why don't you write ten pages in the middle of the book? So okay, so I wrote ten pages in the middle of the book, and because uh, I had a captive audience of students, graduate students at the University of Victoria in Canada. Um, I gave it to them with a with a red pen and said, "Please go through this and and uh, make a, make any comments you may may like to have on this," which they did. And uh, I then did did a few more corrections to the thing, sent it to Matthew and Company in Toronto, and uh, within about two weeks they got a note back saying, "Yeah, we, you've got a contract." And uh, then at that stage, uh, they then said, however, we want to send it on to London, which is the headquarters of Matthew and Company, and to see whether they could, would be interested in publishing it in, in the British publishing something as well as well as the Northern American one, which they did, and so I got a contact there. At that stage, I then had to uh, sort around and find out well, what happens when you write a book and things like that. And there's a lot of things about royalties and all that type of thing. So I, 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 uh, I asked around, and there, there were very few people that actually at the University of Victoria uh, in those days had written a book. I mean, rather surprisingly, I thought most people had, uh, but um, it turned out that not many had. But they were very helpful in terms of the, the legalities of it and things like that. One had to be careful here that, for example, with my royalty statement, um, the, the the question is what would happen if the if the if my if my book uh, was made into a film. Who gets the royalties? And it, it never it was never made into a film, but it was was translated 
in, into Spanish. So there were certain things about the, that kind of thing. And so that was interesting. How Now, that, uh, that opened up the world, world for me to, because people realised that I existed and not just a little guy from New Zealand. And, um, and so, um, the, so the, the book came out, The Value of the Weather, and it turned out to be a, a, a pretty good seller, well, particularly these days, because today, if you, if you write a book, if you, buy, if you can produce 100 copies or 1,000 copies, you're doing pretty well. Uh, well, this one produced 10,000 copies. So, I, so I, uh, you don't make too much money despite all that. Uh, <laughs> so I managed to get enough money to, to buy a, a mini car. That was in 1970. So, um, and then opened up a few other things. And so what happened uh, a, few, a, few, or a couple of years later, out of the blue, I got this, this um, letter from a friend of mine, a former student of mine, uh, Susan Cave uh, from Otago University. And she was working in Geneva. And um, somebody got onto her and said, do you know where John Maunder is these days? And things like that. You know, this is before internet. And... Uh, so in the end result was that um, I got this invitation or was, was asked whether I'd be interested in applying for a job at the World Meteorological Organization, WMO, in Geneva, which I did. And um, so this job was the, uh, to be the uh, chief, chief of the agricultural meteorology part of the uh, World Meteorological Organization. So I applied for the job and got the job and spent two years there. Um, so that, that sort of opened up the world to me on that type of thing. I then went back to New Zealand but had spent two years in Geneva and then spent another um, probably uh, about six years, eight years at the, the meteorological service again. Uh, they welcomed me back again. And uh, and so uh, and that, that carried on until 1962, I think, 19, no, 19, what, 1982. Um, I got a job at the, uh, the University of Delaware, um, where, when, where at that time uh, there was the uh, University of the uh, University of Delaware, and um, I met uh, Joe Biden, the, the current president of the United States. Well, he wasn't; he was the, the he was the, a um, senator from De Delaware at the time. It, unfortunately, unfortunately, I found out that it was he had a, he had a um, an unusual background and the fact that, well, sad background to a certain extent, because just before I met him, about a year after I met him in Delaware, uh, his, his wife and, and uh, son, I think, were killed in a road accident. And uh, anyway, I met him and uh, met him at that stage. And so that was interesting. And uh, I then stayed there for about uh, eight months, then came back to New Zealand. And, uh, and then, then Roger Doug does Doug rugby. Roger Douglas did a few things to the country, uh, rightly or wrongly, and uh, he offered uh, early, early retirement packages to many people in, in the public service, including um, the uh, Met Service. And so uh, when I was about nine, uh, um, eight, what, so six, uh, 50, 58 years old, I took, uh, took this offer of early retirement. At that stage, I was sort of summoned number two in the Meteorological service, um, along with my friend uh, Don Thompson, he was he, he, with me, and, and then and uh, and John Hickman was the director. And um, but uh, uh, it was it was quite clear that uh, um, John Hickman was not going to be asked to stay on. And and um, but we were offered this this uh, 
package, basically, uh, to take take the money and run, basically. That's what somebody told me, take the money and run. So I, because I had uh, all these contacts around the world, I basically said uh, said to my wife at that stage, and uh, um, I unfortunately died she eight, eight years ago, but while she was alive, um, and I remember going back to the, sitting in the spa pool at the end, and I said to my wife, I said, Don Thompson, my friend, says I should take the money and run. So, which is what we did, and uh, um, I got uh, a repl- um, I then wrote round to various people. So I got an offer of a job at um, um, uh, Meteorology in Australia um, for two lots of six months. I an offer of a job at the World Meteorological Organization. Well, basically, uh, not WMO. I was there, but I was also being paid basically by the Stockholm Environment Institute, uh, particularly involved with. Uh, with climate change and things like that, and uh, also a job for, for two years at the Atmospheric Environment Service in Canada. So I spent uh, four years there post uh, post uh, Roger Douglas and uh, retired at uh, about um, when I was about sixty three years old, probably. I then uh, stayed, then came back to Tarona of, uh, for no particular particular reason, except that um, uh, my daughter was. Uh, uh, working in in Rotorua at that time, we had sold our house in Dunedin. Uh, sorry, not in Dunedin, in in Wellington, um, four years beforehand. So basically, what we had was just money in the bank and and no house. And so we had to look for a house. And so it turned out that uh, almost by chance, almost uh, that uh, we bought this house in Tarana, which I I, I like like to, to have, even though I would probably. Uh, uh, and have preferred to go back to, uh, to 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 Nelson, which is still a nice nice place. Nelson, Nelson and Tarong are very similar, and so um, that's what happened. And uh, uh, then uh, I tried to do, get some work, um, being a consultant and things like that. And I got a bit of bit of work and things like that. Uh, one with the port of Tarong, and one with the um, the uh, um, milk company up in uh, over in uh, um, Kiwi Milk, I think it was called. Over in Harwa, and uh, did a few other things like that. Um, but uh, then eventually, the uh, uh, well, I was getting a bit, bit older in time then, and um, so that was right. But in the meantime, of course, I'd, I'd written about three. I did that the book in 1970, uh, but I'd written another book, um, the Uncertainty Business: Risks and Opportunities in Weather and Climate, and then uh, another book uh, very similar to that. And then uh, when I was in the Working for the Stockholm Environment Institute, they asked me to write a book on um, the the Dictionary of Global Climate Change, which I did, and uh, then that was the end of the the, uh, the book writing. Except uh, four years ago, when just at the beginning of COVID, um, I was uh, in Melbourne. My daughter was living in Melbourne, at the, sorry, in Adelaide at the time, and um, so. Um, she, I'd been in town the previous day and it was about 44 degrees. So you could blame global warming on my, my next book. And uh, my, my daughter simply said to me, she said, why don't you write another book? And I said, well, yeah, okay, I, I could write another book. Um, and never, never thought of doing another one. And uh, I, I said, but what, what should I call it? And she said, oh, climate, the truth. Now, even I could, couldn't get, I don't think I could get, get by with writing a book for climate of the truth. I could, some of my colleagues would say, that's not the truth, John, it's only half the truth. Uh, but it turns out that uh, um, 
because, and again, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that the, the Pope wouldn't get away with writing a book, uh, the, the Catholic Church, the truth, and nothing but the truth type of thing. But anyway, uh, I wrote this book, um, and was I called it 15 Shades of Climate. Now, I, I, I belong to U3A, University, University of Third Age Groups here, and I mentioned that to the people who I was in there. They said, no, no, you can't use that 15. They can't have, well, I wanted 51 shades of climate. They said, no, no, you can't do that. And I could never I could understand why the problem was. But anyway, I ended up by having, <laughs> having, having a book, uh, The 15 Shades of Climate, uh, which there's nothing magic about 15 except there are 50 chapters in the book. And then uh, just uh, uh, three, three months ago, I was in Melbourne, and I quite often will go to a meeting there of my old colleagues from the Bureau of Meteorology in, in Melbourne. And uh, one of them said to me, John, they said, you really need to change the name of that book. It doesn't affect it. And so uh, that's uh, what I did. And uh, I now have the, uh, the, the, uh, the book. And what's it called now? <laughs> it is uh, the 15 Shades of Climate, The Fall of the Weather Dice and the Butterfly Effect. That's the one, yeah. Yeah, and I, I am amazed, John. You are 92. Both of these books that well, I've seen, be it the val- 91, be it the value of weather in the 70s, which I see has been reprinted two years ago. It is still yeah, popular. Right. Yeah, as well, well as 15 Shades of Climate, they are, both of them are over 400 pages. For the last decade, you are also the weather eye at uh, Sunlight in Toronga. Gosh. Talk about prolific output. Well, yeah, but the the thing is that I mean, it, it, the, the main thing is see, I mean, it, it's it's thirty years since I retired from the Met Service, so there's been a lot of time to do things. And when I first came to Tauranga, um, they I found out that this this weather eye thing, well, not the weather eye, but the Sun Live, which was a the uh, computer version of of uh, they have a week uh, a weekly paper here called the Weekend Sun. Um, mm-hmm. I did write a bit for that, and then then they suggested that uh, I could put it onto their uh, their website, which I find is much more interesting because I can go straight on there. Uh, I'm a bit embarrassed at times because I just I just write the stuff, usually send it to them on a Monday morning. I use it like one every week. I've done five hundred and five hundred and twenty, five hundred and thirty of them now. And Over the last uh, decade, wow. And uh, so the the um, the, the one I, I'm writing up for tomorrow, of course, will be the uh, weather, um, June weather, Tarawa, 1898 to 2023. So it's just straight, straightforward there, straightforward thing like that. So, but uh, so these things carry on, and I just, uh, I just like doing it, and it keeps the brain op- being active. I tell you that. Yeah, well, look, um, listeners, we've certainly had the entree into Dr. John Maunder's life. Uh, now let's get into the main course. And uh, obviously, there's a lot of substance in there that we probably won't do justice to in a few minutes or your half an hour, perhaps. But um, way back in your Otago University days, you did a thesis. No, your Victoria University days, you did a thesis, the diurnal variation of rainfall in New Zealand. So that means day, the daily rainfall, doesn't it? Diurnal being daily, is that right? Daily rainfall, yeah. Yeah, so that aspect of 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 your formative part of your career, how what you wrote then, how true is it today? I mean, is it exactly as you wrote it? Is it um, has it been tested? Uh, because clearly we know about the daily rainfall in 
when it rains, we know what's there. We The weather goes with you, as they say. Well, the, the, the reason why I wrote that was that uh, my, uh, my father was, uh, was uh, born in Hokitika. And uh, well, I used to live in Hokitika for a while but, um, during my vacation, things like that. And one of the things that I found was that the people on the West Coast say, oh, it, it rains a lot, but most of the rain falls at night. And that's why, why I thought, well, we'll better check this out. Because not much, nobody had done this before, so I just had to go go through the the archives, looking at the the diurnal the the the, the hourly the hourly rainfalls from various places, and I found that in general, it did uh, around about sixty uh, percent of the rain in Hokitika actually did fall at night, and I'm talking about twelve hours and twelve hours during the daytime, twelve, 12 hours at night, and um, most of that rain, sixty percent of the rain falls at night. And uh, whereas in uh, uh, in in um, Hamilton, it's it's the reverse, and uh, the uh, and and I had to first of all and analyze that. And I looked at that from all oh, about twelve different places in New Zealand. This this is from my master's the thesis, and of course, and uh, and uh, that that's sort of how it happened. There's nothing nothing significant about this about the the the, the research I did, except that when you do do as you probably know. As you do research, uh, a lot of it is, is the time involved and the dedication of, of that particular getting involved with that particular subject, something like that. So there's nothing particularly significant about that kind of thing, and uh, I presume that the, that that kind of thing still happens because the, the, the weather hasn't changed very much in terms of that. Um, um, and uh, so that's that's how it happened. And so. <laughs> Yeah, we, we hear a lot about the weather uh, in link, linked into climate change, but just just stay on weather for a moment. Why is it hard to predict the weather, um, say, more than 10 days out? Um, it, you know, and, and I know there's plenty of now uh, websites that do give you a, a bit of an idea. They have um, graphic uh, uh, graphics of the um, storms coming and things like that up to up to two weeks or even a month out. But why is it so hard to make that? Even stick uh, so even ten days is hard. Oh, the the, the reason for that is the weather is so complicated. <laughs> uh, it's, it's as simple as that. All you have to do is to look at the uh, uh, what's happened in the last six months, and we've had these um, what the what, what what we call blocking highs, basically just south or southeast of the Channel Island. Now we don't have one today; uh, it's gone. But for 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 a while this year, we've had these blocking. Now, there's a lot of reasons why them like that. One of, the, one of the, my colleagues in Auckland University of Auckland, he was telling me the other day that the, the basic thing is the sea surface temperatures, and they can be warm or cold or warm and things like that. And you get, you get, and then the other thing with those those things, you get uh, what I what, what I would call the long waves around the around the hemisphere. And uh, if you if you can imagine yourself sitting in a, in a satellite above the South Pole, looking at the Southern Hemisphere, you'll you'll get a you'll get these what they call these long waves. It's almost like if you imagine like, like looking at the snake uh, with a long tail, head and tail, and things like that. And it, it'll you know it'll have ups and downs on the snake. And uh, somebody hits the snake on the on his head, it moves. And that's what happened basically in simple terms in the in the atmosphere. And so you have these long waves, or the, what what most people would call the jet streams around the hemisphere, and uh, in extreme cases in the northern hemisphere, uh, I believe you can get something like only about 
four of these long waves. So if it's four of these long waves, it, it means that the, the atmosphere is very stable. It won't move. And so that's where you have the blocking situation. In the southern hemisphere, there's probably normally about seven of these long waves around the hemisphere. And so um, you, you'll, you'll get a block every now and again for, partic for no particular reason except probably sea surface temperatures have a, a fair amount to, to say on this thing. Though. But you'll have this um, uh, that thing on the uh, 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 these long waves. So an area that um, particularly favourable area is the around the Chatham Islands, things like that. And when I was a weather forecaster, you know, right at the beginning there, you know, we were told all about these long waves and blocking highs and things like that. So whenever I look at the weather map, um, I, I don't look at the I don't look at the, the fronts and things like that. I look at where the high pressure areas are because they dominate. The, 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 the high pressures dominate the weather system, and they move. They move sometimes fairly quickly. Um, normal, normal pattern. Of, you know, you get a high pressure area over Melbourne, for example. Three days later, it'll be over New Zealand. Uh, the next day, it's over over the Chatham Islands, and away it goes. But every now and again, it'll stop, uh, and so there's a there's a log jam, and so basically, and that's what we've had for the last uh, um, well up until a week ago, um, these a log jam, basically. So everything that, that comes down from the tropics, and of course it's uh, it's the tropical air that, that adds, and don't always have the tropical air, but we, we've had tropical air in the last uh, few few months. And that, that result, of course, in uh, in Gisborne, basically being saturated with with uh, with rain. So, so going back to your question, it, it, it's complicated out there. Uh, people think that the weather is... The weather is very simple. Um, well, we think it's, when I say very simple, it looks fairly simple, but when you look at it, um, it, it is quite complicated. Um, so, uh, and so you've got these models now, I've got one at the moment what I use from the European Centre for Medium Range Forecasting in, in Bracknell in, in, in England, or in Bracknell area. And uh, you have these, um, um, these 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 forecasts coming out that the a really marvelous forecast they basically they give you every hour or every three hours at one when I looked at every three hours they give you the the for for Tarana, for example you can go into Tarana and you can get the temperature and the wind speed and all the other things that are related to the weather and uh, it, they're actually quite quite good um and I look at them uh, and I then look at the Met service ones and and look at look at those things there, but it's but beyond um, I, I see the one that I look at now from from the one of the models from not the Metzers one but the model the, and it goes out to about seven days eight days, I think beyond about seven or eight days uh, I don't think that there's not much skill in the, beyond that. I mean the, the model produces the the output, but whether that output is any good is is debatable. Um, right and. John, with that background, whether the output is debatable and the fact that weather is not as straightforward as we would think, I would like to possibly take you back to 1985, the UN-sponsored conference in Willach, Austria, that you attended. And yep. this 85 conference, it was three years before the United Nations formed the IPCC. And of course, today we have these COP27, COP28 junkets where the number of attendees you know, are in the tens of thousands. But in 85, when you attended from New Zealand, there were just about a hundred of you. 
And one of the principal findings of that conference was, and I quote, while other factors such as aerosol concentration, changes in solar energy output and vegetation may also influence climate, greenhouse gases are likely to be the most important cause of climate change over the next century. And today, after this particular statement from the Villa conference, when I go to Neva's page, Neva has presented, has reproduced the six-pager, you know, final output from that conference. And we have all decided that greenhouse gases, and more specifically, human, uh, you know, anthropogenically caused greenhouse gases and warming is what is driving weather, which is what short term for climate. What is your thoughts on this, seeing that you were a part of that conference? When you look back now, what do you think? Well, it's very interesting that what happened at that conference, there were 100 people there. Uh, mm-hmm. We were all there as individuals. We weren't there representing our countries. Right. First thing, there as individuals. I was there mainly because I had some expertise on the economic and social aspects of meteorology, climatology. And there was a small group of, of those tw- of 100 people, about eight, about 10 of us, who were basically had some knowledge from the ocean, some of the social, socio-economic side of things. And we were asked, in no uncertain terms, our job, our job was to take the findings of the scientists, that the, what I would call the, the hard scientists, that's the other 100, the, the, the 90 of the 100, and they came up with these things about greenhouse gas and all the rest, and we were asked to put into into language which the which the politicians could understand the findings of the conference, which is what we did. Uh, even though we did, we had several of us had some misgivings about those things like that. And even then, I had some misgivings about the thing that they were. It seemed to me that they were too much emphasis on the what I would call the too much emphasis on the human aspects of 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 the climate. What when I say human causes, I'm talking about. And uh, and um, also the animal causes, the domestic animals, things like that, things like that, and and almost almost very little inf- information on on what I would call the natural causes of climate change, and of course the the natural causes of climate change have been around for thousands of years. But what you have to do is to go back to 19, so the 1400s, for example. I've just written in one of my papers um, out of my book on the, the building of the cathedrals of Europe. In middle uh, Europe, about, yep. About 1400. Now, those those cathedrals were built for no particular reason. There's certainly no, no my understanding from my theological friends, uh, that there was no theological reason why they were built at that stage. But they were built for two reasons. One, the, the architects had figured out how to, how to build a cathedral, you know, like Salisbury Cathedral, classic case. Why would you build a thing like a cathedral like that? But because they knew how to do it. So this was a challenge to the to the architect. But what was more important was at that stage it was very warm, relatively very warm in in England, um, not necessarily all around the world, but certainly very warm in there. And so there was plenty of food around. And so the people who built the cathedrals, the craftsmen of the uh, of the thing, the the uh, um, that kind of thing. Um, they had plenty of food, and so uh, they lived in lodges. And uh, the, so the masons who who built the cathedrals managed to build all these cathedrals. Now, at that stage, of course, uh, there was a, the, 
um, wine was being grown in, in, in or harvested in, in England at the mm-hmm. same time. So these things happened in there. So if you go back to, and then of course you go back to the to the around about 1600, something like that, when the, the famous Maund de Minimum came along. Now the Maund de Minimum, the same name as my same name, name as, but uh, as far as I know, I'm not related to the Maunder of the Maunder Minimum. He was an astronomer. He lived from about 1850 to 1930, and uh, he and his uh, his wife, or his second wife actually, uh, they were astronomers in in, in Greenwich. And uh, he just uh, on one one particular day, or trying to, he 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 sort of looked at where the sunspots were, and found out that because they'd had pretty good records of sunspots, and found out that on the average you, you get a sunspot cycle, uh, like takes about 10 years, 11 years. Uh, double sunspot cycle, twenty-two years and things like that, and uh, and but he found out that uh, when he goes when he looked back through the records uh, around about sixteen hundred something like that, uh, for about fifty years there were there were no sunspots, almost no sunspots, and this this was known at, not that not at that time, but some subsequent to that, one of the his fellow astronomers and I think it was about nineteen seventy and nineteen eighty, uh, he caught turned turned the the the, the name, the, the Maunder Minimum. So th- this is known as the Maunder Minimum when there were almost no, sun, no sunspots. And at that time, it was associated, although not directly associated, but at that time, uh, they, they had frost fairs, what they called frost fairs on the Thames. Um, it was extremely cold in Europe. And so people con- concerned about uh, um, um, the, the global warming being bad. Uh, well, the, the, the worst thing, of course, can happen if you get not global warming, global cooling. But and John, all of, all of that, when you're talking about, we are going back that far long. The IPCC seems to think 150, 200 years of the man's hockey stick is enough. They don't well, seem to think we need to look at a longer horizon like you are. Well, I think so. Well, well the point the point is that that if you go back to and, uh, my recent book, I, I, I made, that, made the comment, the fact that if you go back to 1800, and that's uh, 1800 plus or minus 50 years, there was there's there's very little what I would call man-made pollution. I mean, there was there was pollution from farms and things like that, but that uh, the industrial revolution uh, re- revolution really hadn't taken place at that stage. And so, um, uh, but we still had warm periods and we still had cold periods. And you, you just have to go back through the the Viking expeditions and all that, and then go back to the to the you know we're talking about a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago. The, the weather really hasn't changed from that point. The climate hasn't really changed. It goes, it goes up and down. And, and all that is due to natural causes. And uh, so that's, that's the thing that I get a little bit concerned about, the fact that there's uh, so much emphasis on, on the uh, greenhouse gases, and particularly in Australia. We've got over in Australia, I watch Sky TV quite a bit, and there's a, the Minister of Energy over there, and he... Uh, he um, he's completely convinced, really completely convinced that we um, we have to get rid of all all kind of uh, pollution, get rid of all the coal and the oil and all that type of thing, and we can have to produce all our energy by the the wind and and the uh, wind and solar. Well, that's okay, but uh, the the problem with that kind of thing is that the, these solar um, um, collectors and the the wind generators they they only last about uh, 15 20 years what are we going to do with them all when they when they then they when they they they, uh, 
they get beyond their uh, um, use-by date. Uh, we're going to bury them. What are we going to do? We've got real problems there. And uh, I think you have to be a little bit careful the fact that you don't uh, don't basically throw out the uh, all, all the uh, the coal, coal coal and oil and all that type of thing because uh, it's uh, it's not as simple as it looks. Put it that way. It's intriguing, John. You the tension about whether it's global warming or or whether cooling would be good for the world because that's what the by inference it's sort of they're inferring that cooling could be good for the world. Well, as as you've highlighted through this interview, that. Uh, the warming of the middle um, medieval warm period wasn't a bad spot on time to live. And in fact, the little ice age uh, periods would be very unpleasant. So it was intriguing to me that when I was doing this sort of, and I don't want to make this about me, but I remember giving a speech in Wellington to the, I think it was the Anglican Diocese of the Wellington University, Victoria. And I used a word variation 17 times in my speech and a certain well-known professor was adjudicating that night and he tried to destroy me by using that word climate very those two words climate variation instead of the words climate change that he was so hell-bent on needing to be used and so how have we got academia so poisoned that they hide behind or want to use the legislative privilege of certain words you know because I've, I've said on the show before that we're not talking about um, real climate change in, in many ways. We're talking about legislated climate change. It's It's got to be within the, um, lower than 2, uh, two degrees by 100 and all that sort of stuff. How have we poisoned academia uh, to come to these conclusions that are so vital? They've got to, they almost want a solution before they got... Um, any sort of reason to have that solution? Yeah, well, I don't, I don't know the answer to this really because, um, as I as I've said several times, um, not in this interview but other time, um, of the climate people in the world like myself, um, I would say I'm about I'm on on about ten percent of ten percent of climate people around the world think that I like like I do, and the other ninety percent hope. But most of those ninety percent are working in in a in a government organisation or university or things like that, and I dare say that um, um, I'm not suggesting that they they get paid because they they think a certain way, but that there's much more of that kind of thing. And so the, the people that I know who who have a my viewpoint, uh, they're mainly people who have retired, and so they have no axe to go grind and. They say what they like and things like that, but my 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 point is is not so much that kind of thing, but just the, just the fact that all we have to do is to look at the world. And you look at the world. You just go back to the year one thousand, for example, and so we, to to today, um, and we, we we've got these periods and periods of warmth and expiration and all that kind of thing. And the world was quite different in those days. That the climate world. Uh, but why the fixation of the greenhouse gases? I, I really don't understand because I would have thought that in many cases it would be easier. It would be easier if the if the green parties of the world and and the governments over in Australia and things like that uh, allow a little bit of, of oil and a little bit of of, of uh, coal to be produced, things like that. But when that and 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 the the, the, the nucleus one 
the nuclear one is a very interesting one because even even you've got the, the my understanding is the green the green party of finland are now supporting nuclear power because they realize that there are that there are other things out there that we we have to look at and so fortunately from new zealand's point of view because we've got plenty of energy uh, norm, normal energy uh, we don't have to worry about uh, uh, nuclear power uh, i remember um, my former boss john john delier he used to be the director of the med service many years 40 years ago um, when he retired he became uh, uh, involved with a, with a a Royal Commission on Nuclear Power in New Zealand. This is 40 years ago, I think it was. And, and they, they found out that at that stage, there was no particular reason why New Zealand should go nuclear at all. That's for nuclear energy. N nuclear submarines is a different thing, uh, but uh, nuclear energy. But in certain other part, parts of the world, and what you have to do is to look at the literature and you, you find that, uh, I'm not quite sure what percentage is, but a large percentage of the... Uh, of the energy in 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 France, for example, it comes from nuclear power. So it's not as though whereas you you try and bring in nuclear power into, into even thought about nuclear power into Australia, it's sort of a, a, a no no event. You can't talk about, not even talk about it. But one of these days, well, they'll, they'll they'll figure out that they got it wrong. Well, I think uh, in a New Zealand sense, John, um, there's talk about pumped hydro into Lake yeah. Onslow near yeah. Roxburgh, and the, the, the number at the moment I think is 15 billion. Um, I stand to be corrected. Uh, I'm told a modular um, nuclear um, uh, power plant could be 4 billion, and you'd put it uh, somewhere where the need is most. You wouldn't have to transmit the power and have all those line losses from south to north. So. We do have to have that discussion as a country. Uh, we, we seem we seem um, to try and squash it all the time, but I think the time is coming. Yeah, I think you're right, and, I, and I'm not a not an expert on that kind of thing at no. all. But I understand that you these days you can you almost can go down to the mitre ten and buy a little nuclear power thing. <laughs> uh, Perhaps not yeah, quite a miniature one, you know. But yeah. it'll, it'll come that kind of thing. So you'll have not not one nuclear power cut in New Zealand, but you might have several of them, little ones. Yeah. John, before we go, I wonder if I could ask you to comment on, you know, what's been your career, meteorology and forecasting and all of that. These days, we can't seem to watch TV for more than five minutes without some sort of hysteria being whipped up by weather presenters and so on. What is your take on what you see? That's if you can be able to look at what is what passes as news today. Uh, start again. Start the other question. Sorry. My my question here, John, was what is your take on the state of uh, say weather reporting today in the news? What do you think? Oh, oh the weather reporting. Well, if you take the weather, weather reporting, if you if you take the standard weather forecasts on TV mm -hmm. one and TV three, they're, they're pretty good. Uh, mm -hmm. I prefer it, despite the uh, connection with the the Met Service and and TV one and things like that. Um, um, I think that the the presentation there is, I find it a little bit complicated. I have to look at it every now and again. It's very good, um, mm. and whereas whereas I think the TV three one is is much is much easier to understand for most people. I, I think probably from that point of view. But the, the the comments on the weather outside the weather forecast, that's the the standard weather forecast, the ones we see at two minutes to seven on on TV one and TV three. Um, I find that the uh, it, it's 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 almost dominated by by the greenhouse gases and things like that, which is a pity. 
Um, we, we don't get much. Um, uh, a good example is probably uh, uh, my, my book. I'm not suggesting that, that uh, it's, it's, the, it's the fashion of the day, but uh, um, I, I sent it to uh, a group the other day, and without, I won't mention the group, but, uh, and, uh, but they, they have reviewed another book on climate change. Um, that uh, and my, my comment was that I didn't think it was probably their scene to 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 look at my book. Uh, in other words, they, they have a fixed interest on on greenhouse gases, um, and uh, it's it, it, to me it's a pity that uh, they spend a lot of time on that kind of thing. Because if you, you just have to look at the weather, the the normal presentation of the news, I'm pretty sure that if you watch the news on any particular day. The word climate change is mentioned almost every time. Every time there's a news bulletin, I mean, it, uh, you know, we, we've got some, we've got a lot of problems in the world, and I don't think that climate is the, is the number one. That's hundred percent correct. Uh, I listen to Radio New Zealand a lot uh, for my daily dose of insanity, and uh, it's used in just about every presenter's story, they link it back to climate change. And it, it gets me aggravated as early as six o'clock in the morning. Um, it's just incessant. Hey, um, one last question. Um, the competitive tension between NEWA and MET service, is that something that bothers you or it's a good thing? Ah, yes, yes, it does to an extent. And I mean, I was in the MET service when the when the breakup took place after, after, after I retired. Um, I personally would... I think we, we would have been better off if we'd stayed with the Met Service and uh, with the research and things like that. Um, or, or, or and one, uh, Niwa's are quite different because uh, my understanding is that when the when the breakup took place in 1992, 92, I think it was. Um, when it was anyway, the the breakup was that the Niwa could 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 only use the Met Service data after after. 24 hours. In other words, they were that, that, that prevented them from making the weather forecasts and the normal weather forecast. What they were allowed to do was to make climate forecasts, and I have no problem with that kind of thing. And uh, but um, what the, the real problem was is that with this kind of thing is that um, fortunately the, the Met Service have have the have the uh, the uh, ability and the, or the, the obligation to make storm forecasts. That's the that's the, the principal reason why you have a met service storm forecast, big the, the storms and things like that. And if you you do that kind of thing, that's probably no problem because we only have one place in New Zealand that makes my understanding only one place in New Zealand makes earthquake forecasts and uh, tsunamis and all that type of thing. You can't have two organisations doing that kind of thing. And almost all countries in the world, you only have one meteorological service. There are plenty of people who, who provide forecasts. But they, they are what I would call cosmetic types forecast, interesting information for the, the, the supermarkets or retail trade or anything like that. But the, the, the real forecast, the storm forecast, things like that, really have to come from the same place. And now at the moment, we're getting sometimes a bit of confusion, uh, both, both the Met Service and NIWA uh, um, making forecasts of storms and things like that. Um, fortunately, uh, I think that even even Niwa uh, realised that uh, they they are only the they are only the second the second block second boat boat out in terms of weather forecast in terms of storm forecast because because you really have to if you could just imagine the United States for example a hurricane coming into the 
to the south of uh, uh, the United States and to Florida. Uh, the national weather forecast makes the store, makes the forecast, uh, not 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 some other place. Even though the other place may well be able to do it, uh, but you can only have one one lot. So in many ways, it's probably it's a, it's a pity that we we've, we've got both, but we've got them both. And Niwa is doing a very good job in terms of seasonal forecasts and things like that. Um, uh, which the Met Service doesn't do, which is which is fair enough. Right. So, look, um, drawing this uh, uh, interview to a conclusion, um, you know, you'd say that uh, the chaos theory is alive and well in weather and climate, and yep, yep. and uh, and you know, for as many papers that are written about uh, how we must reduce our greenhouse gases, um, and that, that man is being awful to the world. Um, it seems to me that uh, the weather gods are going to have the last say all the time, uh, but that's perhaps just me being simple. Do you uh, do, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think I think you're right. The uh, um, I think we have to realise that uh, uh, something is running the running the show, the show out there, uh, and it's not us. Right, and I could glibly say so. Taxing animals uh, to change the weather is not a smart ob- uh, objective, is it? I think I think you're right there. <laughs> hey, so John, um, yeah, drawing this to conclusion and letting you get off to lunch, uh, uh, fantastic having you on. Um, we really are in your debt. Look, uh, eighty plus years in the business, effectively. In fact, your whole life in the business. Um, it's great to have your experience, your institutional knowledge, and uh, yeah, um, we're grateful for you giving us your time this morning. Thanks very much. Okay, thank you. Bye. Thank you so much. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Greenwashed with me and Don. Thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning. I hope you enjoyed that discussion we had, a very free-ranging one with Dr. John Monda. Uh, one thing I got from that talk was that climate is complex. It is not as simple as this decarbonization, this methane and nitrous oxide gas debate that we made it up to. It certainly is not. Well, and, and we concluded by asking John if he thought that you could tax and change the weather, it would have uh, would it be something useful? And of course, his conclusion was sort of um, no, it's uh, quite illogical. So that's where we are in this country. There are people that believe you can tax uh, a minority group like farmers, uh, and you'll change the weather. Uh, in fact, I think the Global Methane Pledge says uh, that they want to use methane as the tool, reject reduction of methane as the tool to reduce uh, 0.2 of a degree of warming by 2100. I think it is 2050 or 2100, 0.2 of a degree. And uh, we're the only um, country in the world doing this stuff. I mean, we've got one six hundredth to one nine hundredth of the world's emissions, but we want to set up an empire for people to administer, uh, you know, the carbon profile, the car- sorry, the methane profile of New Zealand sheep and beef and dairy farms. It beggars belief how we've got farmer agencies supporting this. They clearly are an empire building a mode. It's it's rotten to the core when MSM would not give Tom Sheehan one column inch of press while he was here, and no doubt they'll think he's gone home and uh, we'll all go back to bed. 
I well, think you meant, John, did you mean to say that we have around 600 to 1900 of the world's ruminant herd? I, I think that's right. Sorry. Yeah. Yep. Not the emissions profile. I yep. think our emissions profile yep. is about less than a quarter of a person. Yes. And, and what, what we should say to listeners is it doesn't matter where the methane comes from. The experience, the, the, the information that Tom Sheehan was giving us, it doesn't matter where the methane comes from. It's irrelevant uh, in, in its entirety. So, yeah, picking on ruminant methane is bad enough, but picking on any methane is doubly um, stupid. And so, uh, as I say, there will be an urban component to this between your, you know, household compost and waste. There will be more of the stuff coming your way. But speaking about tax taxing, we've had some more taxes come back this uh, weekend, haven't we? The fuel excise tax, the party poopers who have again there's a uh, alcohol tax that's gone up amazing this was a no new no more taxation government wasn't it well i have to give them a couple a bit of slack uh because they had actually taken that off um to get us through the hard times in recent years now of course they're putting it back on um just leading up to an election i'm surprised they're doing it because um you know there should have been some tension about it but have People just seem to be getting on that that condition to the ebb and flow of government involvement in their life and just seem to be moving on through with it. But it seems they need this tax because uh, uh, the establishment costs for three waters, <laughs> which was supposed to be for the creating the water service entities, the WSEs, was about one to two billion. It now is being reported that the transition period that stretches to 1st of July 2026 will see these just the cost of creating these entities go up from two, two to three billion dollars. So, you know, we got to plug the gap down. Got to plug the gap. And isn't it so easy to just have those numbers roll off? I mean, two to three billion dollars, another billion. Uh, it just rolls off your tongue. It's part of the conditioning. We're now talking in trillions uh, around the world when you. Uh, know of the international debt or something like that, or the cost of net zero in America, it's trillions. But but it just seems like uh, no one, where's the value? Where do these people think they can, what are they getting off on here? Because clearly this concept is rotten to the core. It doesn't work. It's been written about by many, many um, agencies like Castalia, who have said right from the outset that this is not going to work the way you're you're selling it and on top of that uh what grates my gears more than anything um well there's two things local government should get back to its core business and it would never have been in this bind where it has under investment invested in some councils in its infrastructure doesn't matter whether it's roading or pipes under the ground or 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 the like they got the power of general competence in 2002 they got the right to raise a lot more debt and they've done so much stuff that is not core local government stuff um, and seem to be the go-to place for grants uh, to get all manner of things in, all, in, in my area anyway. It's but, the but whole I, diversity equity but, thing uh, coming into play at the local government uh, level yeah, too. Yeah, absolutely. So in some ways they shot themselves in the foot local government, but it is get rid of that stuff out of local government and get local government back to doing the local infrastructure work and, and we wouldn't have to have this nonsense three or three or 10 waters concept at all. And when Castalia um, says that it is seriously flawed, and I read their um, 
more than their executive summary. It was very clear that uh, this government hasn't done its homework. Um, Castalia looks like they have uh, to me. But worse, then you add in the co-governance nonsense. And we're in a serious predicament. Not only are we wasting billions setting up this concept because we had, what was its der- derivation? It was around the Havelock North um, Boarhead uh, contamination issue. Yes, and the official information documents released uh, this last weekend show that further cost to the Crown would be likely uh, required to operate the new drinking water regulator, Tamota Aroway. Now, the chairperson of Tamota Aroway is Dame Dr. Karen Putasi. She has been in the past our New Zealand Director General of Health. This weekend, just when Three Waters came back into the news, I also saw her name. She's now been also appointed as the chair of the new uh, Ministry of Health, uh, you know, a health board, Tifatuora. I can't even keep track of all these is, name changes. Is that, what, is that what Rob Campbell was on? Yes. So after okay. he's been fired. So there's, and Dame Putasi was also on the panel that was set up about this Hawks Bay, Havelock North uh, water contamination. So she was part of the advisory panel to see, investigate what went wrong in 2017. And that's from where Three Waters started. We began with a council supply contamination. We've ended up with this multi-billion dollar ratepayer asset grab. Uh, and some of these names just seem to have, you know, come along down the Rode along with it ever since. Yeah, you, you hope the conflicts are, um, are managed and ob- declared. There sounds to be some conflicts in there, but I can't believe that we constantly waste money setting up ideas before there's an acceptance that there is going to be any benefit. And when I read reports like Cantal- uh, Castalia's that talk about how there's serious flaws and, and serious issues about um, the the benefit over cost. Um, you know that ram ra- railroading this through is is for what reason? Well, it strikes me it's for the reason of co-governance more than anything, and for um, Maori to have the power of veto over anything that happens in our water services. It's just rotten to the core. So, and, where is the equity in that? <laughs> well, don't like using that word, do we? But um, it, there is no equity. It is it is nonsense and uh, it is divisive. And yet, there's so much money being wasted in this already. It reminds me of the clip or the the cycle lane over the Auckland Harbour Bridge that didn't happen in the end after spending hundreds of um, millions. Well, millions. They've got no these. What is it about politicians and bureaucrats that seem to have no value understanding? What is it? I value every dollar I earn because you have to. Why don't they? On our behalf, why don't they? I'm yep. pretty angry about this. I, 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 I know, you know I'm aware that um, in the southern region there's been a fair bit of tension and pushback. But you know, I, I talk about the um, bribery money that was given to councils um, mm-hmm. to seduce you into um, uh, falling into line with Three Waters and now Ten Waters. I mean, it, it is nothing short of um, taxpayer bribes. Money being used that was gained initially from tax being used to bribe councils. I have lost track of how many excuses has 
have been used for three waters to push this down. And, you know, it has changed the name three waters, ten waters, affordable waters. Honestly, it's like, you know, a really bad train wreck. But it first began with, oh, it's because of, you know, you need a new water regulator. Hawks Bay, uh, Havelock North uh, contamination. We need to do things better. All right. Then it became to co-governance. Then it came to, oh, when suddenly people started speaking up about that. No, actually, it is because you guys don't have, can't afford to do this by yourself. We need to be the savior, the central government. Once water gets controlled, gets regulated, and again, just like Dawn and I spoke last week about the health equity adjusters, where you're asking surgeons to now decide based on ethnicity, who gets prioritized on a wait list and that your ethnicity is now a factor in deciding the level of care you receive. We now have that over water, a very fundamental human right to now have demographics deciding what is right, what is wrong. And especially when there was nothing wrong. Sure, there was a bowhead and havelock that was found to be defective. Mm. There, there clearly has been none or very few other instances in New Zealand where water quality wasn't right. And if there is some issues, they always give you warnings like boil your water because we've had some sort of mishap. Um, there is no need for this. There is no need. And so what was the real agenda? You do have to think it is around this new treaty partnership um, regime that we've got ourselves into thanks to um you know, the wording from a judge a few years ago. I mean, this can't end well. This just can't end well for us. And instances overseas show that this sort of concept doesn't really work. Um, you know, I, 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 it, why is it not? It seems to have gone off the boil. What has caused that? What has caused that? I don't. I don't understand. Uh, have have the local authorities, and I know you can't comment here, Jasper, but uh, have the local authorities been sort of bought into line? The cash. Well, when you front. once you once you pass the legislation, Don, it's no more under local authorities' control. They ultimately legislated it because Castalia, and for people who are not familiar with the name, Castalia is a global investment uh, global advisory firm. It's also mm. got a New Zealand office in Wellington. And it provided its own analysis of the shenanigans that were going on in 2021-22. But our government decided that we need to model ourselves on the Scottish water regulatory model. And the reports that were done for Castalia on behalf of some of the councils that were, you know, kicking and screaming about this not being right, they say very clearly that local authorities' own estimates of the required investment into water were ignored. All local authorities in New Zealand, says Castalia's report, agreed to provide the government with comprehensive information during the request for information phase in mid-2020. But despite all of that, a top-down modeling using incomparable Scottish figures was used and, you know, those papers that the councils provided were not worth the money, the ink they were printed on. And it was just being rammed through. And LGNZ, local government New Zealand, the 
what do I have often compared it to the dairy and Z or beef and lamb. It is supposed to be a club. You pay an annual subscription that is supposed to go and advocate for councils in Wellington. They had signed a sort of a prenup with the government, with the Crown, saying that we will help you drum up support for Three Waters, despite their own papers, which are available on LGLZ website in 2017, saying that the water model is not 2016, saying that the New Zealand water model is not uh, essentially broken. But then came 2017, Havelock North, gravy trains, and here we are. And suddenly, the cost for these entities has ballooned from one to two billion to two to three billion. How easily these figures just roll off the tongues? Just rolls off the tongues, and yeah, you know, as you say, initially, uh, one of the clients that bought into the Castalia reports was local government New Zealand, along with the Whangarei Council, the Timaru District Council, and the communities for local democracy, C4LD, which was 24 councils. They bought into that um, Castalia report and they seem to have just let it let it go. Uh, and as you say, in 2021, things have changed quite a bit. Massively. And, and it seems and- Auckland and Auckland, as per the 30th of June newsroom article, it says that the government decision to stick to the original July 2024 date is going to mean that the quick start happens at Auckland and Northland for three waters rolling down to the rest of the country. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, going right back. If if local government doesn't get its wings completely clipped and told to get back to doing its core business, it deserves everything that's coming its way. But the ratepayers and the taxpayers of this country do not. And that's I, I'm agitated about this, as you can tell. Um, I, it's an election year. Why won't they roll this back? It almost is like they don't have an option. The government doesn't have an option. And so who is dictating this and why is this happening? Well, I assume uh, the, the treaty has um, got getting these people into some sort of lockstep with uh, treaty demands. And, of course, you've got... Uh, you know, got some um, seriously uh, influential Maori leaders working us over. Uh, why is that? Uh, because we're too scared to stand up for what is right. They have browbeaten us uh, everywhere you go. You uh, know, um, it, it's embarrassing to talk about it because I don't like talking about it, but. It's almost like we live in fear of doing the wrong thing. The, the white people are bad um, and uh, they've oppressed the colonizers. We're just, we're just rotten to the core. Paid all the bills, going to pay the bills again, but we're rotten to the core. Yeah, we could go on about this, but I am. It's, yeah, it's, it's no fun in it. There's no fun not, in this discussion. I am conscious of the time. And <laughs> again, this weekend, Auckland Council. Their website declared that their program, Safe Spin, a safe swim, my apologies, Safe Swim, has been recognized by the World Economic Forum 2023 as one of the three winners of the Digital Twin Cities Global Pioneer Project. The council website blurb says the award recognizes technical excellence and careful planning between public and private partners to design solutions for pressing urban challenges. And 
you know, seeing a World Economic Forum headline on Auckland Council, and it brings to mind uh, Chris Hipkins is in the summer Davos in China this year. Yeah. So, and he went with how many planes, John? Oh, I think there was uh, there was a spare one. I don't know if it was a spare parts or just spare to have around. Um, but interestingly, did you see in the in the build up to going to meet with Xi Jinping, there was any discussion that he was also going to be at um, the Davos Summer Champions Conferences and mixing and mingling it with those non entities at the um, WEF that you know Luke Melpass thinks are pretty pretty much. Pointless. <laughs> Nothing to see here. <laughs> the Don is referring to Luke Malpass's article in the Vicero Times that reads Chris Hifkin's Big Morning at the World Economic Forum, dated June the 28th. I mean, I could go through the whole article, but the best part is the last line, the kicker. Luke Malpass says, Have no fear, worried conspiracy theorists. The World Economic Forum isn't running anything. Oh, oh, oh <laughs> thank really? you, Luke. Yeah, it's great. And it's interesting how um, uh, we've highlighted in recent weeks how New Zealand trade negotiators do mix and mingle at, at, at the WEF. So they have no influence. There's nothing to see there. Uh, come on, Luke. Didn't come no, he, down the last year. Talk about gaslighting. So Luke begins this article saying that, you know, that we had some footage of Schwab in 2017 in a thick German accent saying that we penetrate the cabinets. He then went on to explain that his events company, is that what we are calling the World Economic Forum, has lots of young leaders through its various conferences who are now serious senior politicians. And it's with some delight that I clapped eyes on this man who is supposedly controlling governments of the world. The surprisingly diminutive Schwab held court in his executive chairman's office and received the New Zealand Prime Minister ambassador for a chat. And he said, that uh, Klaus Schwab said that WEF, World Economic Forum, hasn't had much to do with New Zealand at all, but that Jacinda had been to one of the conferences. Okay. Uh, yeah, look, uh, it's fine. Um, nothing to see there at all. And in fact, um, I have to think um, this is a sort of spoof article by Luke. I'm, <laughs> I recall he, he used to write, uh, write good right wrong stuff, but I think this is just a takeoff. So I'm assuming um, it's all in jest. Uh, who knows? Real life and real life just seem to, you know, roll and blur into one these days. <laughs> But anyway, we've had the, the our prime minister's had his his um, trip to meet President Xi, and um, no doubt uh, everything's tickety boo. Yeah, and it's amazing we have all these leaders heading off to these conferences. I remember Jacinda doing lives from Switzerland. I think it was two or three years ago. No, uh, they have had an in-person conference this year after three years, and she was doing lives about oh, this is where we are heading to, and this is what's happening here. But uh, the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, uh, founder Klaus Schwab, as a part of the summit Davos, sat down for an interview with the Chinese state media outlet and proclaimed China was a role model for the West. Schwab said he respected China's tremendous achievements at modernizing its economy over the last 40 years. Well, and, and so they have. Uh, modernize their um, their country. Uh, no doubt there's always going to be work to do there, but I mean, it, you'd have to have 
rocks in your head to not understand that um, the influences are not who we think they are. You know, we're not, we elect a whole bunch of politicians, but there's a whole people, bunch of unelected people around the world pulling the strings on us. And I see that Larry Fink is on his board of WEF, as is um, Al Gore. It was uh, no. Schwab who in 2019 said, ESG scores are necessary for stakeholder capitalism. Yeah, yeah. This is a model, he says, that I proposed half a century ago. Mm. Positions which see private corporations private corporations as trustees of the society. Mm. And these are the ones clearly best placed to respond to today's social and environmental challenges. We need to seize the moment. And and that's right. Uh, you know, the hedge fund operators um, like BlackRock, Vanguard, State uh, are all massively influential um, over our lives now. And um, I made a mistake just before the break that I said um, uh, one or two and 500 have got their emissions profiles right around their um yeah, they're reporting. It's one in 155 that I, I the article I read today. But moreover, what I see about hedge funds is they they reduce competition because of their dominance. They they get into sectors and be, get dominant uh, investments into a you know a certain sector of of investment, and they slowly bury the competition. And to me, that is wrong. Uh, I I'm open market competitive sort of thinker, and uh, I just add on top of that that ESGs they are as these numbers look like are starting to show ESGs and some of these companies are just totally greenwashed. They just aren't aren't as honest and as uh, well founded as they purport to be. And they're going to get found out. And even Larry Fink is starting to use a language that isn't ESG. He's, he'll, they'll find another acronym, Jasper. They'll find something else. It is, it's the same thing like with three waters, 10 waters, five waters, affordable waters, ESG, environmental, social, and governance factors in investing. Call it DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. It is, it's like these buzzwords, flavors of the moment. But last week, Larry Fink, who manages $9 trillion of greenwashed assets via BlackRock, said he's that he's no longer using the term ESG because it's being politically weaponized and he's ashamed to be part of the debate on this issue. And he said when he wrote those letters, he would write to different companies. He said it was never meant to be a political statement. They were just for our long-term investors to identify you know, uh, major issues. But he said, later on, he corrected himself. He said, no, 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 I never said I was ashamed. I'm not ashamed, but I believe that the right words are conscientious capitalism. Conscientious, conscientious capitalism. I've got it written down right in front of me. I am not going to use the word ESG, he said, because it's been misused by the far right. That's you and me, Don. Oh, yeah, we're far right. Oh, gosh. Yep. Yeah, so they're, this is not going away. They're just going to use another word for it. But unfortunately, mm. in New Zealand, we've been so greenwashed that we haven't even begun talking, you know, openly about ESG and diversity, equity, all of this in a more coherent way. Mm. We see bits and pieces of bilingual road signs, equity, justice, and uh, health settings. 
something in schools and so on, but you've never seen the whole picture. Meanwhile, the ones who began this are already moving on to the next stage of, you know, conscious capitalism, uh, investing. Yeah, yeah conscientious um, uh, capitalism. So, yeah, look, I I see it that way too, Jaspreet. And, um, yeah, we've been very slow. And I understand, I think I get it. It's a bit like environmentalism. When I first started getting involved in the RMA and trying to understand that, there was words used that didn't make sense to me, um, but they made sense to the people that have been educated uh, in that sphere. So it's almost like it's by design to have the confusion factor as long as you can. And it's when you and I start to wake up, they can move on to the next confusion factor. Um, so look, let's not encourage them to break out of ESGs yet. We need to we need to sort them out. Um, yeah, especially when you have companies like New Zealand Steel who've got $140 million of your taxpayer dollar of your taxpayer money mm. now talking about how they're going to have a 40, 40, 20 split in genders, some 40% male, 40% female, and 20% gender diverse. This is what your money is paying for New Zealand. Yeah, I'm I'm struggling to visualize that workforce. I really am. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to be so glib. No, it is it's amazing what we've come to. But well, yeah, it, it it's even getting, you know, something we'll talk about in, in future weeks is um I, I've watched a few clips recently about Western Australia and how uh First Nations people are, are putting pressure over uh, property, private property rights there. Then in Queensland, it looks like there is going to be some attack or some privileges afforded to the First Nations people there where they can get um, environmental credits for their work on their lands. And, and same for farmers, I suppose. So we've got carbon trading, uh, CO2 trading, but soon we might have environmental credits, something I'd never thought of before and heard of before until I watched a YouTube clip of a certain senator. I've forgotten his name, but we need to get into this in the next few weeks, Jasper. And we will. The, the media around, you know, they are going to keep peppering our uh, news articles with all of this. And you can certainly count on the people, the, the consultants, especially that particular category to keep mm. pushing this because oh. God knows that seems to be the only profitable business in New Zealand right now. Oh. Consultancy. There's hundreds of positions being advertised right now for consultants to measure on-farm emissions and you know, compliance. Hundreds of them being offered positions right now. So some of them may be just consultants who are already in private enterprise and will just contract in. But I don't need any more um, clipboard um, you know, assessment officers coming anywhere near my private property. I've had enough. and. Uh, yeah, I just wish other farmers would stand up and say no more. You know, I, yeah, I hope we're getting to that because I think it, it is the rubber's really hitting the road and we've got people with so much anxiety, so much uh, stress in their lives that some of them are throwing in the towel and, you know, they're ending their lives. And, it, you know, I say that the people that are pushing these agendas, they're the ones that have got blood on their hands. Literally. Mm. In some places I attended a mental health event here recently and uh, in in my neck of the woods in western southland and you can see the rural community hurting and this is not i don't say this lightly this is not to denigrate anyone else's mental health struggles but certainly the fact 
that farmers have been made out to be environmental ogres and been hammered by media for at least the 15 years I've been in New Zealand does a number on your mental health, does a number on your well-being. Mm, 100%. And um, I, I don't know why those people that are constantly pushing this into the parlance uh, have no shame, but they appear to have no shame. But anyway, look, it's been a fantastic um, uh, set of interviews we'll put up today. So I hope that our listeners have got some some benefit out of it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining Don and me this morning. We hope you have a great rest of the week, wherever you are. It is, uh, if I don't know how cold it is at your neck of the woods, but Don and I could certainly do with some global warming <laughs> about, about now. Bring but before, on. yeah, bring it on. But before we go, we're going to end with a short podcast on the EST scandal, the which is a trillion dollar weapon being used to control corporates around the world. This particular podcast comes from the US, where unlike you know what I said in New Zealand, we don't seem to be having a coherent debate on it. They are certainly after the Bud, Bud Light and other issues. They are certainly seeing what's happening there. So enjoy this one. Have a great rest of the week, wherever you are, whatever you do. And Don and I will be back next week. Goodbye. So look, with recent news about Target losing $9 billion in a week after having a section for the Pride Month and the clothes and transgender and wait a minute, what just happened? Why did they lose $9 billion in a week? Why did Bud Light just lose 28% of sales and it's not even slowing down and all of a sudden they're coming back saying, no, 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 we, we love our drinkers and we're not going to do this Dylan Mulvaney thing. And then ESG comes out and says, oh, you guys had a perfect score, Anheuser-Busch, but after the way you handled yourself with Dylan Mulvaney, we are lowering your score and they're so scared. What happened to CEOs? number one customer being the buyer, you and I, then their employees, then the investors. Today, these S&P 500 companies, why are they so scared of BlackRock? Why are they so scared of their ESG scores? What is ESG? ESG is a score to measure how well a company addresses risks with respect to environmental, social, and governance. Hence, ESG. Issues in its day-to-day work and operations. These risks include matters like carbon emissions, employee safety, and board diversity. The system uses analysts and algorithms to calculate environmental, social, and governance ratings that are then combined into a score. So where did ESG come from? In 2006, the United Nations enacted the principles for responsible investment, PRI. PRI is a set of six principles that outline how investors can integrate environmental, social, and governance, ESG, factors into their investment decisions. The PRI has been signed by over, ready, 3,000 investors representing over $40 trillion in asset under management. These are the six principles of the PRI. Number one, incorporate ESG issues into our investment analysis and decision-making process. Number two, seek to ensure that our investment activities are aligned with our commitments to responsible investment. Number three, disclose our investment policy and procedures in relation to responsible investment. Number four, encourage investment managers to incorporate ESG issues into their decision-making process. Number five, work with investee companies to promote responsible business practices. Investee, meaning companies that they invested into investee companies. Number six, promote the PRI within the investment community and with other stakeholders. So wait, UN as in like United Nations, United Nations? Yes. What what the hell does United Nations has to do with the way Bud Light or Target or other businesses on S&P do business? Well, this is how they have had the chokehold on companies to get them to hit a score 
So they do what United Nations wants them to do, which is what a lot of people in America are worried, saying, wait a minute, why not just worry about America? Who the hell are those guys to tell us how we live our lives, how we run our companies? That's what happens when companies become global companies. Some of these companies want more control. Let me even go deeper into how much control the United Nations, UN, has over these companies. So, UN has powers to influence the flow of capital and set international laws. Companies need capital. You have a high score, you get capital. You have a low score, we're not giving you the capital you want. Number one, legislative powers. The UN can pass resolutions that impose sanctions on or invest in sustainable development projects. Control. Number two, judicial power. The International Court of Justice, ICJ, can impact the rights of investors and ability of countries to regulate the flow of capital. More control. Number three, financial powers. The UN has influence over the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, which have the power to lend money to countries and to influence the flow of capital. More control. The UN has several ways to influence these institutions, including the UN General Assembly and the Security Council can pass resolutions that are binding on the World Bank and the IMF. The UN can appoint representatives to the boards of World Bank and the IMF. The UN can provide funding to the World Bank and the IMF. The UN can issue reports and studies that can make recommendations to the World Bank and the IMF. So the next question will be, is there somebody above the UN? Who is above the UN? Who controls the UN? Well, let's take a look. NGOs have the most significant influence on the UN's decision-making process. NGOs, non-governmental organizations. Through lobbying, advocacy, and partnerships, NGOs have massive influence over the UN's agenda. They also have played a significant role in mobilizing public opinion on UN-related issues. The NGO that encouraged the UN to enact the Principles for Responsible Investment, PRI, was the United Nations Environment Program Finance Initiative, or UNEPFI, is a part partnership between the UN Environment Program and the financial community. So having said that, some of the largest NGOs today include Amnesty International, revenue was roughly $392 million last year, Doctors Without Borders, they had a $2 billion revenue, World Wildlife Fund, they have a revenue of $256, $257 million, Oxfam, $119 million, Save the Children, $950 million. And so now the next question would be, so who controls uh, uh, the UN NGOs? Now who controls NGOs? Let's take a look. Top donors. So who are these top donors? Well, governments, Netherlands, Norway, Sweden, and Switzerland are the top individual donors into the UNEPFI. So financial institutions such as AXA, BMP, Deutsche Bank, HSBC, ING, these financial institutions provide funding to UNEPFI through their membership fees and through their participation in various programs and initiatives. Foundations such as Ford Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, these foundations provide funding through their grants and through their participation participations in various programs and initiatives. You ready for the next one? This one's kind of weird. Ready? Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has donated billions of dollars to various NGOs worldwide and partnered with NGOs like the World Health Organization, UNICEF, and many others. George Soros Open Society Foundation, HRC. According to Open Society Foundation website, the organization has given a total of $100 million to HRC over the past 10 years, which has been used to support a wide range of organizations' work, including legal challenges to anti-LGBTQ laws, public education, education campaigns about LGBTQ issues and lobbying efforts for LGBTQ rights legislation. By the way, if you're wondering how big Open Society Foundation is, which Soros gave $100 million to, he's given to them since 1984, $32 billion of his own money. Soros, his own money, $32 billion has been given to Open Society. It's a massive ran by George Soros. So it's crazy, right? You think about all these big organizations. Why, why do they care so much what these companies do? Why do why do they fear with this ESG score? Some? Why are they doing so many things that makes no sense? Why would Bud Light target a transgender audience? They don't drink your beer. You have military. Why would you make such dumb 
decisions because they're worried about pleasing the score. Here's a story from Bloomberg regarding BlackRock and Larry Fink. Watch this. In 2020, Larry Fink declared that a fundamental reshaping of global capitalism was underway and that his firm would help lead it by making it easier to invest in companies with favorable environmental and social practices. Our flows continue to grow and dominate, Fink said regarding ESG funds. On the same conference call with analysts, he added, BlackRock is a leader in this, this being ESG. And we are seeing the flows and I can continue to see this big shift in investor portfolios. What Fink did not say is that BlackRock drove a significant part of that shift by inserting its primary ESG fund into popular and influential model portfolios offered to investment advisors who use them with clients across North America. The huge flows from such models mean many investors got into an ESG vehicle without necessarily choosing one as a specific investment strategy or even knowing that their money has gone into one. In short, an apparent BlackRock-led rush of investors into ESG in the past two years has been something of self-fulfilling prophecy, at least when it comes to the biggest such fund on the planet, a BlackRock exchange-traded fund that trades under the ticker ESGU, according to data from BlackRock and Morningstar. So do you support ESG? You, do, do you watching this? Do you support ESG? Do you have mutual funds? Do you have stocks? Have you invested into some of these funds? You may not know, but a portion of your money is supporting ESG and you don't even know it. That's what this is kind of talking about. By the way, let me give you some numbers on how powerful it is and why company CEOs, S&P 500 CEOs, shiver when it comes down to these types of things. Watch this. Number one, Net Zero Asset Managers initiative launched in December 2020 with an initial group of 30 signatories. By the end of 2022, it had 291 representing over $66 trillion of assets under management. It's a lot of money, $66 trillion. According to Larry Fink's 2023 CEO letter, today's global financial assets total is 400 trillion. This is 66 trillion. That's a lot of influence. According to Boston Consulting Group, asset managers control roughly 60% of global investable assets. This is why companies are afraid of going against ESG asset managers control investment flows. There is no other way to say it, but why a CEO of a company that knows who 99% of his customers are wants to pander to this? Because behind closed doors, that guy is scared of not getting a good score here. How weird, right? Three companies I want you to know about, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard. These three companies, the amount of power they have with ESG is wild. Here's an article from Harvard Business Review. Look what it says here. One of either BlackRock, Vanguard, or State Street is the largest shareholder in 88% of S&P 500 companies. <laughs> Let me say this one more time in case I said it too fast. One of three, State Street, Vanguard, BlackRock, is the largest shareholder in 88% of S&P 500 companies. Did you catch that? That's a lot of control and influence. Three largest owners of the most Dow 30 companies, overall institutional investors, which may offer both active and passive funds, own 80% of all stocks in S&P 500 companies. The big three collectively held a median stake of 21.9% in S&P 500 companies, which represented a proportion of 24.9% of the votes casted at annual meetings of those companies. Now it makes sense. It's not these poor CEOs that were bashing and trashing. They didn't do anything. They're just reporting to their boss who owns 24.9% of the votes. They get to impact their waiting God, Imagine you're sitting in this board, right? And they're like, well, here's what we're thinking about. We're thinking about making something to target to get more families to come by and make a drink for veterans because we kind of want to do this. No, we're going to do this. And if you guys go against this, we can't fund your this. Oh, uh, what do you think? 
I'm kind of going with these guys. I still want my job. What do you think? You were with me when we talked yesterday at dinner, and you said it was a good idea. I don't know what dinner you're talking about. I'm going to go. Why? He doesn't want to get fired. You don't think these types of things happen behind closed doors? What do you think? What do you think? When you have this kind of control, what do you think happens? You have to be naive to think it doesn't happen. These three firms control roughly 80% out of about $4 trillion in total ETF assets. So if they sold you and you're watching this, you're like, yeah, but Pat, the whole thing with ESG is environmental. Aren't they trying to make the environment? The whole purpose is to make the world a better place. So the planet's going to be around longer. No, isn't that what it's about? Well, maybe. That's what they say. But let's see if that's what they do. In December of 2021, Bloomberg found that only one of 155 ESG upgrades of S&P 500 companies cited an actual cut in emissions as a factor. (laughs) Oh, my God. One in 155. But listen, ESG, what we're doing is environmental, social, and governance. We're trying to make the world a better place so you can last longer and live longer than your kids and the planet and all this stuff. Oh, really? Yeah. Show it to me with action. One out of 155. Yeah. You're full of shit. I don't believe you. That's kind of how the average person, after they look at the numbers, is going to say, I have a hard time believing these guys are doing it for a good cause. Okay, so, so, so as if this ESG stuff wasn't enough, have you guys heard about DEI or CEI? Maybe you've heard about it. You don't know a lot about it. Let's, too many acronyms. I'm with you, but let's, let's take a look at this as well. So, DEI and CEI take over corporate America. According to JustCapital.com, as of 2023, 94% of employers and 74% of workers say that their organization has made a commitment to advancing DEI in their workplace. Compared to 2021, only 32% of companies required some form of DEI training for their employees. You're talking about 94% of employers, and just two years ago was 32% of companies require some sort of DEI training. This thing's becoming a phenomenon right now. It's cool to say we have a DEI and a CI training. I think we even fell for it like six years ago or five years ago at first, thinking this was a good cause. Okay, so DEI and CI take over in corporate America. There's a few things we need to know about. First, before I give you the stats here, which is absolutely wild. Okay, so DEI stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Refers to organizational frameworks which seek to promote the fair treatment and full participation of all people, particularly groups who have historically been underrepresented or subject to discrimination on the basis of identity or disability. So, sounds like a noble cause, right? Now, let's look at CEI. CEI stands for Corporate Equality Index, which is the national benchmarking tool on corporate policies, practices, and benefits pertinent to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer employees, which is kind of wild now because now with the CI score, if let's just say I'm a 22-year-old kid, just got out of college, I'm working for S&P 500 company, 379 are participating in the CI score, 138 is their first year ever. What do you think they're doing to employees like you and I for working there? What do I have to bite for? What language do I have to use? What can't I use? Now, here's what's a little wild. When you think about social media sites for business, there's only one of them you think about. You think about LinkedIn, right? Even LinkedIn wrote an article about how this DEI could be a bad thing for business. Here's what it has to say. Seven ways your DEI initiatives are harming your company and how to resolve it. Number one, DEI is discriminatory. (laughs) Can you imagine? It is discriminatory. It's LinkedIn saying this. Number two, DEI unnecessarily preferences physical attributes over the non-physical. Number three, DEI diminishes the size of the talent pool. Number four, DEI decreases performance. Number five, DEI is divisive. Number six, DEI diminishes accomplishments and disincentivizes performance. Number seven, DEI is distracting. 
says LinkedIn. LinkedIn article, four ways to resolve it. Number one, close the DI office altogether. Number two, eliminate diversity quotas. Number three, hire, promote on merit. Number four, seize all diversity training programs and reinvest that time and money to upskill employees. Little crazy, little wild, little dark, little no common sense. It just doesn't make any sense what these guys are doing here. By the way, do you know what the top five best ESG score companies are? Number five, drum roll, Bank of America. I am surprised. Number four, Salesforce. Number three, Microsoft, Bill and Melinda Gates. Anyone surprised? I'm not surprised. Number two, Intel. And number one highest ESG score is a company many say that supports the government. It's a company called Alphabet, hence Google has a high CSG score. Do you want to take a wild guess which companies have the lowest CSG score? These are anti-establishment companies. You think Tesla has a high ESG score? Can you imagine? Tesla does more to actually help with the emissions, but they have a medium score. They're not impressive. They're right in the middle out of all the automobile companies. Out of 81 automobile companies, they're ranked 41. And they're doing more than all these other guys. Twitter, not the best score. Fox Nation, Fox News, not the best score. Xerox, not the best score. AT&T, not the best score. These are at the bottom. I wonder why. Because they're not caving into these ridiculous policies that these guys are coming up with that cost Target $9 billion, that cost Bud Anheuser-Busch $15.7 billion. I tweeted this the other day, and I'll explain three points I talked about, about why this doesn't work. Lesson four, Fortune 500 company CEOs and CMOs. Number one, screw your ESG score. Instead, focus on keeping your best customers happy. Number two, you can't please both the ESG community and your best customers at the same time. Attempting to do so will cost you both. Number three, it's time for the board to fire the CEO and the entire marketing team. You know what the problem with that is? The board will gladly fire them because they're ESG people, because they own 24.9% of the board seats in the first place. Make sense? This is kind of weird to say fire them and don't fire them. They're probably not gonna fire these guys because they're doing exactly what they want them to do, but in an ideal situation of capitalism, not controlled by some UN PRI score, those guys would get fired. Number four, bad ideas have consequences, and number five, capitalism works, pandering doesn't. Either go into politics and sell your ideas, or run a company knowing your number one customer is us, then people that work for you, then these nonsense people out of UN and ESG and BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street that control you. You work for them and the world is starting to realize it. Don't you wanna be free? If you do, maybe talk about it so the rest of the world can realize what it's like to be so afraid, shivering of your ESG, DEI and your CI score. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now.